Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, September 18, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. I think you'll get a chance to be no shot, no shot, Josh, here um, sooner than later. Maybe not in good old red state South Carolina, but in some of the the less conservative places around America, there's going to be a a debate about, you know, vaccine mandates, and uh, that's headed our way sooner, probably, uh, than later. Good morning, Royal Rev. Yeah. Good morning. I know what you got on your mind. What do I have on my mind? Well, let me give you uh, a tale of two halves. <laughs> yeah. Right? That, I'll take the first half. Thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, you take the first half and not so much um, the second. <laughs> yep. So I want to get your take. You always ask me my take. I want to get your take on the game okay. in, uh, between the hedges in okay. Athens, Georgia. All right. Between the um, the number one ranked Georgia Bulldogs and the South Carolina Gamecocks. Your take. Obviously, before the game, I mean – all year before the game, all the way up until the beginning of the game, it was like, man, I just hope we don't get embarrassed. I just hope we we show up a little bit. We score, you know, some points, something. But what was the spread? Like 27 27. And a half? Yep, 27 points. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, saw that we played respectably during that first. And I say we were talking about, obviously, the Gamecocks versus uh, Georgia. And then you start thinking, oh, you're saying we have a chance, and then anything other than a win, once you get to you know having a lead at halftime, is a disappointment. So you're obviously. disappointed. Well, obviously. But, you know, I, I also try to look at it. You were you were 27-point underdogs. Yep. You lost by 10 in a fairly competitive game against the number one team of the country in their building. That's right. And you're disappointed. Well, then, see, that's well, what I mean, I'm saying. I, I, I'm I, with you. I'm going to – you, I'm, 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 this is self therapy. When, when you taste it, when you taste the, the the potential victory, and then it doesn't happen, it kind of falls apart. Obviously, during the, which which you had to have expected. I mean, I I went into halftime and I said they're they're probably going to make the necessary adjustments. They're they're not the number one team in the country for no reason. And but still, you know, you tasted it. You said, "Wow, this could really happen." And then you start thinking, "Man, what if it does? What does that do to college football? What does that do for our program? What does it do to to Georgia and the you know in the rest of their season?" It was about as well schemed a first half as I've seen South Carolina have since a couple of offensive schemes Spurrier had uh, in a lesser talented game against Auburn, Georgia. Spurrier had a a propensity to scheme and game plan, kind of a riverboat gambler. And at certain times, well, let me spur you, always said, I can take mine and beat you, yours or yours and beat mine. You know, it doesn't matter. I mean, he always, that's why he didn't recruit much. That's what when, um, I think Todd Gurley, yeah, Todd Gurley came to South Carolina to visit. Spurrier said, I got to go play. I'm playing, playing golf. I, 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 you know, I, I show him around. I show him around. Tell, tell him how much we love him, but I'm going to play golf. Uh, anyway, um, that was always <laughs> his mentality. But the first half was about as good a game plan executed by pretty good football players, not great by any stretch, but against great players. And I mean, it, what's well, the old saying? You pull the pants down. I mean, there was some of that happening in the first in the first half. Um, here's my concern. Why'd we change from that I mean, plan? They changed. I mean, they, they made changed. adjustments, and they've got better players. You know, um, that there's in in most games. Between South Carolina and Georgia, between most games and in, in, in Georgia and anybody, there's going to be a talent gap. I mean, unless Georgia plays Clemson on their best day, uh, Alabama on their best day. Right now, Georgia has better players than Clemson or Alabama, but there's not this massive talent gap. Um, there is across the board with South Carolina and Georgia. Um, 
not at certain positions, but across the board, there's a talent gap. And when there's a, a, an obvious talent gap, you got a scheme and game plan. And the Gamecocks had an excellent first half. Georgia went to the locker room at halftime and made the adjustments. And all of a sudden, you know, the scheming and game planning goes by the wayside and the talent gap kind of uh, rears its head. It's obvious who had better players. Um, but, but the concern I have is, and I don't know that there's enough evidence here, uh, front seat or back seat. I don't know if there's enough evidence here, but, but something concerns me about, you know, um, the second half adjustments. I mean, that's a big deal of coaching. The really good coaches make adjustments. In the North Carolina game, South Carolina was outscored 14-3. to In the Georgia game, South Carolina was outscored 21-0. to So they've been outscored, what, 35-3 to against, I mean, North Carolina's not Georgia. North Carolina's a similarly talented team to South Carolina. I mean, who's got the better players, North Carolina, South Carolina? That's a fair question. I mean, there'd be a legitimate debate about those two schools and who has better players. There is no debate between Georgia and South Carolina. I mean, Georgia has better players. But but once again, when when good coaches coach great players, it, it's hard. I mean, it, it is. And, you know, when um, I mean, when you got good players and great players, South Carolina has some good players, a lot of average players, a lot of young kids that are trying to earn their keep. Um, I just worry about that 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 trend. I hope it's not a trend, but that's something – that if I were going to be critical of a game, it's hard to be critical of South Carolina going to Athens as a 27-point underdog and then basically putting up a good fight. I mean, no doubt about it, they competed. They did some things that um, you kind of like. You see a little bit of promise there. Um, I had a friend of mine text me yesterday, what if Juice hadn't? Well, I mean, who knows? I mean, Juice, is, Juice Wells is probably the biggest playmaker South Carolina has and, you know, get the ball in his hands and he makes plays. Um, but injuries are a part of football. You know, Georgia lost a couple of offensive linemen. They had a defensive back that was out. I mean, that's just the nature of football. You always feel like your team gets injured more than anybody. But if you really level it out uh, over the long haul, I would imagine. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, I, I do believe. Now, now, you want me to get in the weeds with you? Mm-hmm. That there is a belief amongst some that that schools of a certain pedigree are not prioritizing strength. They, you know, you got strength and conditioning programs, and there, there's some out there. I mean, I'm not an expert. I know enough to be dangerous. There's some out there that believe that some of these teams are paying more attention to conditioning and less to strength, and strength is a big deal. I've read, because of my infatuation with Mount Everest, the people that have succeeded and the people that have failed to summit Mount Everest, and it's almost across the board. The people that failed to climb Mount Everest, underestimated the strength you needed. Cardio off the chart. Condition like crazy. Ate seaweed sandwiches for two years. You know, I mean, just just unbelievably fit and conditioned, but they underestimated the strength required to climb Mount Everest. And some of these strength and conditioning programs at major universities like South Carolina Clemson, Georgia, obviously, they're 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 paying closer attention to the conditioning part than the strength. And there's kind of a, um, there's a lot of analysis going on now about teams with a lot. NFL's doing a lot of this. The NFL teams with a higher rate of injury. And I'm talking about soft tissue, uh, ligaments, muscles, tendons, and all that sort of thing. Um, is it because they are, their conditioning 
is so much a bigger part than their strength training. I don't know that to be the case, but it does seem in the last couple of years, really since the, about the last four years, South Carolina's had more than its fair share of, um, of injuries. I've got a theory. You don't want to hear it, but uh, you know my theory. My theory is Under Armour makes an inferior shoe. That's what I was going to ask well, I mean, you. I, I, mean, I, sp- I, stand, I stand by that. Specifically, Juice well, I mean, Wells is a foot problem. I, I still believe that Under Armour makes an inferior shoe. But that's me going off the deep end. But that's me looking for extreme reasons that South Carolina's having lower extremity injuries more. And I said it last week or the week before, and Breeze said, play football barefooted. I mean, that's probably the best way. Play football. None of these shoes are designed to do what 250-pound men are doing now. You know, the um, the amount of, what about torque, I guess, um, on, you know, a big man stopping and turning directions and all that. Um, but I still believe some shoes are better than other shoes. And uh, Under Armour writes a big check to protect this house. But I'm not sure they make <laughs> a, a real good shoe. <laughs> You've seen the big scoreboard. Oh, yeah. We must protect this house. Protect this house. Make better shoes. Uh, <laughs> and we'll do a better job of protecting this house. But uh, but he, here's where here's where the Gamecocks are. And um, and we'll get to Clemson because they got a big game this Saturday. First time in a long time. There, there may be a Clemson fan out there listening. I know there is. Um, that could tell me the last time Clemson was a home dog. I mean, I saw this morning that uh, Clemson is a one-and-a-half-point underdog at home. When is the last time Clemson was an underdog mm-hmm. at home? It's been a while. Yep. I mean, it's been a second. I can assure you of that. But um, here's what the Gamecocks better be nervous about. Uh, there's a toss-up game this weekend in Columbia against Mississippi State. You got to win that one. I mean, you, I, mean I, I don't want to say must win. But Beamer's third year, they're one and two. I mean, if they slip and fall Saturday at home against Mississippi State and go to one and three, you got to go to Tennessee. Uh, at Knoxville's always a heavy lift for the Gamecocks. And they have a score to settle. Well, I mean, could that be one and four? You come home against Florida. You know, Billy Napier looks like they're a little bit better than people expected them to be. And then you go back-to-back on the road at Missouri and Texas A&M, and this thing could get real ugly real quick if they don't win um, Saturday. So, I, you know, I'm not one to say must-win game in the Beamer era, but this is Shane's third year. And if you come out of the shoot one and three, lose two toss-up games, they've already lost one North Carolina. If you lose a toss-up to Mississippi State, I would argue at Tennessee is not a toss-up. I mean, you're going to be a seven-point underdog against Tennessee and Knoxville, and then you come home to play the Gators. That's kind of a toss-up game. You go on the road to play Missouri. That's kind of a toss-up game. On the road to play A&M, that's not a toss-up game. I mean, that's going to be a heavy lift for South Carolina on the road against a talented A&M. I mean, anything can happen. I mean, they could win all of these games. They could lose all of these games. I mean, they've got – I don't know the last time I remember. I'll look this morning – I don't remember the last time the Gamecocks had this many conference games that you could honestly say the spread probably won't be outside of a touchdown in any of these games. They're four-and-a-half-point favorites, I think, this Saturday in Columbia. Um, they're going to be underdogs against Tennessee in Knoxville. They'll, they'll probably be a pick against the Gators, depending on what they do in the interim. But uh, they'll be a pick against Florida, and then you go at Missouri, at A&M, I mean, worst case scenario, you want to, you want, I mean, worst case, one in seven. Ooh. Well, let me, I mean, Ouch. seriously, if yeah. you lose Saturday, I mean, there's a chance you lose at Tennessee. 
There's a chance you lose to Florida. There's a chance you lose at Missouri. And there's a chance you lose at Texas A&M. I mean, those aren't, that's not an unreasonable scenario. I mean, I don't think it happens, but I think that's how important this Saturday is against Mississippi State. You knew going into the season, you weren't a dominant team. I mean, I don't care what anybody says. Oh, they beat Tennessee and Clemson and almost beat Notre Dame. You know, half a roster. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you, you drink that fool's gold or eat, uh, you know, buy into that fool's gold if you'd like or drink that garnet Kool-Aid. I mean, I'm just not that kind of fan. I ain't a sunshine pumper. I, I try to be, you know, Limbaugh, the mayor of Realville. This is a <laughs> this is a team that can be pretty good, and they can also have some pretty significant issues. I'll give you the yeah, but because I heard it, it was either on CBS or ESPN when they were talking about the recap of how South Carolina gave Georgia a run for the money in the first half of the game. Uh, they said, and South Carolina still has one of the toughest schedules. And, I mean, even one of those national commentators made that point. Well, I just gave you five pretty yeah. – pretty. I mean, th- those are legitimate football programs that you got to figure out a way to win. And th- three of the five are on the road um, at Tennessee, at Missouri, at A&M. Mississippi State and Florida at home, they, they finish a little better. Uh, they got four consecutive home games in November, Clemson included in that. Um, so, so, I mean, if you can weather this storm, uh, if I mean, if you could beat Mississippi State, go to two and two, lose to Tennessee, go two and three, beat Florida, go three and three, beat Missouri, go four and three, lose to A&M, go four and four with four games at home to finish the season. I mean, that, that, and then two would be Vanderbilt and Jacksonville State. I mean, you kind of win the lottery. So, I mean, if the Gamecocks can figure out a way to come back to death, I mean, excuse me, come back to williams Bryce in November 4 and 4, I mean, they, you know, yeah. I mean, that, I think that would be uh, very reasonable. But obviously, you want to win them all. I mean, I get that. And you just said, you know, you're disappointed to go to Athens and play the way you did in the first half. But here's what happened. Um, I mean, they negated Florida's, I mean, excuse me, Georgia's advantage athletically by getting the ball in quick hitters, hitting seams with quick passes, and Georgia brought their backs up. I mean, Georgia just said, you're not going to beat us with a screen anymore. Well, when you're not going to beat me with a screen anymore, you're going to have to force a quarterback to take five-step drops and and hold on to the ball while pattern develops. And, you know, the offensive line has had its issues, um, to say the least. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, the, the Georgia defensive front was able to put a lot of pressure on, on Spencer Rattler. And uh, I love it when somebody says, well, that quarterback's not as good under pressure. <laughs> really Joe Montana wasn't that good under pressure you know no, nobody's <laughs> real Tom Brady's not good nobody's real good under pressure I mean give a quarterback a chance to in a clean pocket and they'll normally I mean they're pretty good at throwing the football but I love it when somebody I mean I heard it yesterday he's not good under pressure I mean he's not good when he's scrambling <laughs> no quarterback he is that's the idea of putting pressure on a uh, on a quarterback but anyway big game in Columbia this weekend, I mean, it's not a game of national significance. I mean, it's not Clemson-Florida State. I mean, that's a national game that will decide. I mean, the, the most interesting part of this to me is I've heard two false alarms in the last 12 or 15 years that Florida State was back. And this is a game. You know, this is a game that you decide or find out whether, indeed, Florida State is legitimately back or not. Um, they're going to one of the toughest places in the country to play. Um, Clemson, I didn't watch the game, but Clemson, um, scored 48 points against Florida Atlantic. Um, and they'll, you know, they'll be waiting. I mean, you know, uh, they have been one of the elite teams in America for the last decade. Some national pundits believe that, um, you know, they, there's been a 
precipitous decline at Clemson because of the generational quarterback play that they don't have today. But you got to believe Clemson will dig in. You know, um, they, they'll they'll give Florida State their best shot. And as a college football fan, I'm a Gamecock, but I'm a college football fan. That game is so interesting to me that we may start tailgating at about noon. <laughs> I told my son yesterday, I said, Clemson's screwing us up. What do you mean? I said, they play at noon. I mean, we normally get there. I mean, Gamecock Park opens five hours before the game. We normally get there at the allotted time, but Clemson will play at 12. And I said, is it crazy for us to try to get there? And he said, not really. Um, depends on how hard you want to pull for Florida State. You know, so, 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 well, I mean, the whole, the whole Gamecock Park will be pulling for Florida State. You know that as well <laughs> as yeah. I do. And then if you go to Death Valley, I would imagine the entire stadium was pulling for Georgia. Um, I was thinking about Death Valley and some of the parking around the stadium. And if you, you know, you're watching the games and you're listening to a score and somebody says that, um, Hey man, in halftime, South Carolina's beating Georgia 14 to three. That is like, please tell me that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, I mean, it's, it's the nature of, of the rivalry. Eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven. We're done with our college football, uh, report. Um, a big game for the Gamecocks, a big game for Clemson. Uh, in very for varying reasons for for different sorts of reasons um what ha- what is what is the narrative if Florida State does beat Clemson I mean that, that's kind of what I'm interested in what what I mean is Florida State all of a sudden the best team in the ACC I mean for the last decade you've not even had to ask that question Clemson's been clearly the best team of the ACC if Florida State beats Clemson Saturday, do they, are they, I mean, are they back or not? I mean, it's hard to say they aren't back to some degree, but if they beat Clemson in Death Valley, are they all of a sudden supreme in the ACC? I am glad you're about to exit the sports segment and not talk about the Braves. Yeah. Yeah. The Braves. Well, I mean, who cares? Right. Really and truly. I mean, it, you think that's their attitude? Sure. I mean, they, yeah. I mean, they're, they're riding out the regular season. Um, they clinch the division. Clinch the division. I mean, Got, they, they'll hunker down here. I mean, you just had to believe they would have a, kind of a weekend, you know, uh, a weekend long drunk, so to speak, <laughs> where they didn't pay close attention, uh, not very attentive to detail. I think they rested some players in varying reasons. Yeah, but I, do it now instead of the last week of the season. I mean, do it now and then kind of get your head back straight, get focused on the task at hand, and finish the season strong. I've always felt teams that had big leads made a mistake by waiting until the last week of the season to rest players. I would rest now and then get them back in the groove because um, the Braves could have a week off between the time the regular season ends and they play their first playoff game. And I'll tell you, baseball's a lot about timing. I mean, that That's kind of a punishment for being the best team of the NL instead of a, a reward. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. One of the interesting uh, uh, things that happened over the weekend, I found interesting, and you know, there's a there's a big debate about informality in society. Um, Josh, is society too informal? Uh, there was a day that blue blazers were very common. The shirt tucked in was normal. All of a sudden, you know, somebody doesn't tuck their shirt in and gets away with it. Somebody, you know, some some uh, st- some style setter or trend setter decides to wear a button-down shirt, doesn't tuck it in. Mm, I like that. Looks a little, um, you know, a little more liberated, <laughs> so to speak. 
Well, I mean, now the Senate has changed its dress code to accommodate um, John Fetterman. I don't know if you saw that or not over the weekend. No, I saw it. But no longer will suits, and I'm talking about jackets and ties, be uh, mandated by those who are members of the Senate. Now, if you're a visitor to Capitol Hill, it is required. But I mean, there's certain areas that you got to have a, um, a jacket and tie on, but John Fetterman can dress as he chooses in these jogging pants, these long NBA-looking jogging pants and a hoodie and conduct the people's business. Is that a big deal, Josh, to you and, and your generation? To me, yes. Okay. To my generation, probably not. Okay. I, I Why get... is it a big deal to you since you're better than anybody in your generation? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I think it's, you know, like we have come to a point in civilization where we're so advanced. I think this is like a step down. I think there's something to be said about dressing nice. You know, I look back at videos of people in the 20s and... Wear a suit to fly on an airplane. Yes, yes. I think it it has to do with respect and self-respect. Like, I lose my mind when I see someone at Walmart in pajamas. I'm like, have you no shame? Like, what's going on here? And and to and I get that he is, uh, Fetterman had a stroke, but like, but he dressed our, like that before he had a stroke. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I, you know, I get like. In your home or whatever, of course, like, you know, don't wear a suit when you're, you know, just getting out of bed or don't wear it to sleep or anything, but like to Capitol Hill. Come on, dude. Well, okay, let's stay here for a second, because I remember, I mean, I grew up in a Baptist church. My mom died in 04. I remember going to church one day in about 06 or so. Now, my mom died in 06. Dad died in 04. Mom died in 06. I remember, uh, you know, I went to church at a Baptist church, grew up in a Baptist church. And from the time I was old enough to wear a tie, I wore a tie. I mean, you know, not Wednesday nights, not Sunday nights, but Sunday morning, I mean, you, you wore your Sunday best. And that's how country I am. You wore your Sunday best to church. And I remember um, looking around in a church I was a member of in maybe 07 or 08, and about half the congregation had a tie, the other half didn't. Um, a month or two or three later, about half the church had a sport jacket on. I'm talking about men, and the other half didn't. And a year or so later, somebody had a golf shirt on. And then a year or so later, somebody had a golf shirt untucked. And then a year or so later, somebody's wearing a T-shirt. I mean, I don't think we ever got to muscle shirts because I would have been enthusiastically supportive of that um, <laughs> that evolution <laughs> of, of You've wardrobe. You've got the wardrobe. Yeah, I, mean, that, I would have been very excited. <laughs> Because I've got a, um, I've got some pretty neat muscle shirts, designer <laughs> muscle shirts, to be honest with you. But um, they're reserved for Pauly's Island and Litchfield. But no, th- I mean, I want to get your take here, Reb. Mm-hmm. So, so you understand the argument I'm making. Um, in other words, if John Fetterman's wearing, you know, these running pants and hoodies, and he looks like a doofus, I mean, he really and truly does. I don't know what sort of dude he is. Don't have any idea what his mental state is. I don't care uh, much about it. But but he looks like a doofus walking around in that outfit he wears. Um, and on the other, you've got the the pocket square, the immaculate suit, you know, the 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 tailor made. I mean, you got the Hickey Freeman, Oxford Brooks Brothers. You know, what designer is you? I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Is it um? Did you get that off the rack? What's the best you can get off the rack? Right, custom made. Go see you know such and such in New York City about 
making you suit or not. Um, I saw a um, a 60 Minutes special, and it included Chuck Schumer, and it showed Schumer at the Hickey Freeman Taylor in New York City. I mean, Hickey Freeman has suits off the rack, but he also has suits you can buy. And um, and I guess Schumer said off the rack, getting quite good enough for a you know one of the senior members of the United States Senate Majority Leader uh, now. So he would go in his back room at Hickey Freeman. So Schumer's comments yesterday were, I don't know if you saw this or not, you know, I'm going to continue to wear a suit. But but I guess the point I'm making is, let's use church as an example. I mean, we don't go to the Senate chamber, right? I mean, uh, Jim Jordan doesn't wear a jacket, but he always wears a tie. In my political days, I always felt, okay, if I'm not wearing a tie, I need to wear a jacket. If I'm not wearing a jacket, I need to wear a tie. Uh, if I'm going uptown, I mean, if it's a debate or something, I need to wear a jacket and a tie. But who says? Who says I got to wear a jacket and a tie? How many of you seen Ramaswamy wear these, um, you know, uh, polo-looking shirts that, that aren't tucked in? I mean, I watched him speak to 10,000 people, you know, with a polo shirt not tucked in. It's a generational thing. But, but I think we always, human beings, go as far as we allow them to go. And I think, I mean, I go back to the church. When I looked around and, and, and men didn't have ties on, and then, you know, six months later, I look around and men don't have tie or jackets on, uh, you know, a year later, they don't have, you know, I mean, they're, they're wearing golf shirts. Six months later, they're wearing golf shirts untucked. And I'm not saying one makes you more, you know, obedient to the gospel of Jesus or not. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not trying to be judgmental, but but it isn't it kind of the slippery slope argument and what is acceptable or not. I mean, I find Fetterman unacceptable. I mean, I just do. I find I find it disrespectful to the the transacting of the people's yeah, business to the, to the institution to, to wear that. But I don't know where that line of demarcation is. Why change it? What? Why change it? Because Fetterman and why just now? didn't want to wear suits. Well, that's ridiculous. Well, I mean, I, it might be, but I mean, he he was hell bent on not wearing suits, doing things his way, and they are accommodating John Fetterman. I mean, I think he was in violation of some. I mean, I, I don't know what you do. How do you punishment? How do you censure? I mean, has anybody <laughs> right. ever been censured for wardrobe? Um, you know, violation. Yeah, but I, I, I don't know that. But the, the point I'm trying to make I, is, I didn't know there was a dress code for senators. To be honest, so that okay. was the first time I'd heard of that. It makes sense to me. And I'd certainly like to see them have not changed. Well, I remember uh, presiding over the South Carolina State Senate, and there was a dress code, and it was suit and tie. I mean, you know, tie and a jacket. Then it'd be a suit, could be a sport coat, but it had to be a jacket and and a tie. Uh, now you could go in the chamber and do your thing. I mean, you could be outside of the ropes, is what we called it. But if you stepped inside of those ropes and you did not have a jacket and a tie, I mean, you were in violation of the dress code. And some of the um, uh, some of the senior members, some of the ranking members, I guess the president pro tem of the Senate would have probably been the one um, to to officially address. I don't know what would have happened. In other words, if they tell the the junior senator from uh, you know from from Lexington County, you can't come in here uh, behind the ropes. You can't be on this side of the ropes without a, a you know a, a jacket and a and a tie. He said, "I'm not doing it." I don't know what would have happened. I mean, I don't know if you can exclude that person for participating in the going zone of the Senate. Are you okay with Jim Jordan not wearing a jacket? Well, he's not in the Senate. Okay, he's, he's in the House. He's House member, and I don't know if they have But he's a, a member of the Congress. Yeah, yeah, but okay. I, and I don't know if there is a dress code for uh, 
And see, I think about the the Senate. It is the the upper chamber, right? The the deliberative body. I mean, there there is a higher level of expectation. At least that's the image I would think they would want to continue to portray. So you're okay with Jordan not wearing a jacket as a member of Congress, but not as a senator. I mean, as a House member, Representative Jim Jordan gets a little more leniency than Senator Jim Jordan in your eyes. I, I think that the House and the Senate are different. Okay. And I, and again, if if there was a if there was if there was a House dress code in in place already where they were requiring jacket and tie, then I wouldn't be for changing it. Uh, but apparently there's not. I mean, I've seen him in committee hearings and such where he's not wearing and I don't know if I've seen him on the floor but, like but that. But you would agree there's a difference in wearing a a um a starched ironed button down shirt with a tie than a, you know, a hoodie. Of course. And a pair of running shorts. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's and dis- some gym shoes. disrespectful well, I mean, to the institution. But but so so what is not disrespectful? I mean, where is that line? I, I use church. Once again, I'm, I mean, I, I'm about to say I, I've never been in the Senate, but I am. I mean, I presided over <laughs> um, the Senate. So I do know what the codes were. You had to and wear a robe. I did. I mean, I had to wear a robe and I, and I, I got some leniency on the, um, the tie and the jacket, but I'll tell you this, um, an hour or two before the Senate went in session, I would always walk in to my work area, which was behind the ropes. And I never went without a, um, a jacket and tie. I mean, I remember every time I've ever gone, uh, in the, in the Senate chamber behind the ropes, I had a jacket and tie. Cause I just remember McConnell and Leatherman and some of the peeler and some of the old hands saying, Hey, this is just the way we do things over here. You may not like it. You may think it's old fashioned. You may think it's a bit outdated. And one day you may run the joint. You know what I mean? And you can do what you choose to do um, then. I just think it's interesting that we're making changes to accommodate John Fetterman. That's the issue. And it's pretty extreme changes. I mean, if someone said, okay, we're going to do this. It's 2023. This sitting the days of Brooks Brothers and, you know, Hickey Freeman. We live in a more casual society. Um, Country club membership is down. Um, I would hate to know that I made a living selling blue blazers for the next 20 years. I mean, I really do. I think we live in a more, uh, more, and Josh, you know this, a more informal society. Things that weren't accepted back then are uh, more accepted um, today. But but I could live with, I mean, if somebody made a change and said, okay, either or, a tie or a jacket. I mean, you can come in here without a tie as long as you've got a jacket. You come in here without a jacket as long as you've got a tie. I mean, I'm not saying that, that I like or approve of that, but I can accept that. I mean, that's a reasonable evolution, so to speak. But to go from the members of the U.S. Senate required to wear a jacket and tie to they can wear anything they want to wear. And, and this is the point I want to make in closing. If I were a Republican, I'd show up with a pair of coveralls and nothing else. I mean, there I would dress go. like one of the Leadbetters There's from Jerry Clower flip flops and a muscle yeah, shirt. Yeah, I mean, that, there you go. I'd, I'd wear me a Gamecock muscle shirt pair of flip-flops and a maybe a um a bathing suit <laughs> you know dress like jimmy buffett i mean if i in in, in honor of <laughs> buffett i'm going to wear a a flower a flowery shirt and a um you know a panama jack hat i'm just saying if, if the democrats are going to set up that this as normal then normalize it to the extreme and the next thing you know you've got the village people you know in the senate i mean you got somebody dressed like a cop and Somebody dressed like an Indian and somebody dressed like whatever, you know, uh, anything goes. And, well, I mean, I'm just saying that there was no, there, there was no consistency to their wardrobe. Mm-hmm. What's this guy and this guy and this guy. Anyway, uh, 
I, I, w- I would encourage a Republican or two or three. Now, I don't know who that would be, but I would encourage a Republican or two to take advantage of the more yeah. lenient um, yeah, dress put, code. Put a spotlight on uh, the ridiculous rule yeah, change. There, there you go. I mean, yeah, uh, make the ridiculous even more ridiculous. If Fetterman goes in with running short and a hoodie, then somebody walk in with, you know, like you said, a muscle shirt, flip-flops, and maybe somebody else go in with a cowboy hat. And, you know, I don't know. I'm just it, – it, it's it's asinine that we're making this exclusion or making this change in the name of one of the most unusual cats that has ever served in the, uh, in the U.S. Senate. I'll tell you the funniest part about Fetterman. There are really people out there that don't believe this is him. I mean, you've seen the stories. Oh, yeah. you, you've seen, seen, you know, it. this isn't really him. Look at his head shaped. I mean, look at the tattoos under the bottom of his arm that aren't there anymore. I mean, th- there's a lot of people out there. It kind of amazes me. It entertains me to some degree. And and I'll admit, at times I'm going like, he doesn't have those tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> he had those tattoos. And now he doesn't. And his head does look a little bit different. Um, they they showed a picture that was supposedly. Oh, here we go, John. See, well, I, I, we saw, go, I saw this yesterday. Hey, we're, we're letting Rev be Rev now. <laughs> Different shaped earlobes. Yeah, <laughs> that too. But they showed a they showed a picture. Where somebody put an A and B picture. You saw the two where he looks totally different. And they said this was supposedly taken the same day. And in one he has that mustache he's got now, and in the other one he had the goatee. So man, he sure grew that goatee fast. So he's got a body double. That's well. That's, Fetterman has that's a body the conspiracy double. theory, right? <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Hey, and we don't embrace conspiracy theories here on Wake Up Carolina. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. I always need something to wake me up on a Monday morning. Ryan Schmelz is about as good an option as we got this morning. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us from our nation's capital this Monday morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing good. Good morning to you. And the Orioles are playoff bound, so I'm in a very good mood today. Yeah, maybe the Orioles and the Braves face off in a uh, in a World Series. That would be a lot of fun. I would be very satisfied if that's the result. So let's good hope deal. it happens. We'll, we'll try to hold up our end of the deal, and you try to hold up hold up yours, Ryan. There's still a lot of. I mean, it's kind of a moving target. The reaction to uh, the Hunter Biden indictment. I hear some Democrats say, "Hey, this is proof that there's not a two tiered." justice system i hear republicans say yeah but i mean it should have happened a long time ago and some of the statute of limitations uh, don't apply any longer what is the latest reaction to the hunter biden um, indictment right so i think one thing right before the weekend hit you had the white house coming out and giving the exact same answer they had to this question about whether or not president biden would pardon his son if his son was convicted and they stuck to the no that they gave back in July. So the White House is staying firm on that, that President Biden will not uh, uh, pretty much pardon Hunter Biden if, in fact, he's convicted. Now, of course, there are some outstanding legal charges that could be coming down the road. We don't know if that's going to happen or when that's going to happen. But the reality is that the White House is going to have to answer questions about this while President Biden's campaigning because we're expecting this to kind of continue into the uh, presidential election cycle. But, Ryan, wouldn't the administration try to make this a story about Hunter Biden? I mean, you've got an impeachment inquiry on the uh, on the House side that, that kind of is trying to link Hunter Biden's business escapades, so to speak, to um, Joe Biden. If I'm, if I'm in charge of the White House, I'm trying to make sure – I mean, I don't want to say throw your kid under the bus, but, but I would try to make this exclusively about – about Hunter Biden, any kind of scuttlebutt you can tell us re- relating to that? Yeah, 
really, really the White House's strategy on this has been that they're just trying to avoid this altogether. Say President Biden supports his son. And and ultimately, you know, this is we're, we're going to let the legal system play out and let the justice system do its own thing. Kind of like what you mentioned, where a lot of Democrats are saying this is proof that the Department of Justice and the justice system does work. And it's not an example of a two tier justice system. Now, of course, if those other charges come down the road where we're talking about Hunter Biden's taxes, then you're going to see a lot of Republicans, I think, start speaking out and say, well, hey, we've got a lot of evidence from our oversight committee investigation. We want that to be used uh, in this case. And that's something that they've, they've been lobbying for in the past. We'll have to wait and see if that actually does happen, though. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Hey, you too. Thank you. That's kind of a um, interesting. Trying to get the, the, the juices flowing this morning. Um, I do want to go back real quick to something that we touched on Friday. Um the floor is open. I mean, it's always open. 843-661-0937 is the number, and all opinions are welcome. And some of the antagonistic opinions um, of some of the callers to the show. Um, Rev gets a lot of emails and Facebook, you know, uh, messages saying, don't let these people on. I mean, this is our sacred ground. Well, mm-hmm. it's not. I mean, it's not our sacred ground. We're going to always allow people with different opinions to interject whatever they believe is appropriate in uh, the conversation, but but one of our one of our resident um, non-conservative callers, shall I say, that I'll leave unnamed, um, said something Friday that confused me. It confused me because I've not read. I read a lot of this stuff, and uh, some I take with a grain of salt. Some I believe are legitimate reporting. I mean, I, I, I've done this long enough now to know, you know, who's serious and who's not. Who's trying to get hits or, or clicks or likes or whatever, and who's honestly trying um, to do a decent job? Reuters is left leaning without question, but Reuters is legitimate. I mean, Reuters writes stories based on accurate reporting, and um, and I'm going to go back to these certain callers that called saying that you know the um, I mean the insinuation was that the the electric vehicle is in such demand they're they're, they're asking above sticker price. That's just not true. I mean, the U.S. EV market is struggling big time. I mean, they're offering price cuts and concessions. They're, they're having a lot of issues with inventory. Um, the internal combustion engine, um, for, for all the vehicles in America, well, the internal combustion engine, there's about a 51-day supply sitting on yards around America. Um, now, that'll change with the UAW strike. I mean, there's no doubt about it that, um, you know, that industry will be in turmoil for a while trying to figure which way is up and you know what what is a fair deal and the UAW is going to ask for too much um I read some things over the weekend that led me to believe I was right when I said Thursday and Friday that the I mean if 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 the government continues to strong arm auto manufacturers into building cars that people right now just don't want and if they did want them make sure they can afford them despite some of the incentives but if that's the way the government continues to push the private sector in that direction, it's going to require fewer employees. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the the, um, the reality of the EV sector, the more electric vehicles we build and the fewer internal combustion engine uh, vehicles we build, the fewer employees, Ford, GM, Toyota, you know, Tesla, Tesla would be different. I think they've streamlined their process, and it's probably where they've got such an advantage, competitive advantage, in the marketplace, not just do they have, you know, some of the software 
the proprietary information that Ford and GM don't own. Toyota doesn't own it either. Um, Tesla does that in-house. We heard from the uh, the Ford CEO about how many contracts they've had to sign with uh, with information. But but there's just not an example. There, there aren't any examples. In fact, I looked on, anybody ever heard of car gurus? Yeah, I think I've I, mean, I went on car thing. gurus. I mean, th- there are price concessions being made on nearly every electric vehicle listed. I mean, there are big, steep discounts, uh, price cuts. Um, they've been on the lot 367 days, 157 days, 209 days. And I made sure I didn't just pick one isolated incident. You know, here's a, um, here's a Ford F-150 Lightning, and it's been on the lot 150 days, and we're, we're asking, you know, $5,000 less than we were asking before. Um, it's just not true to say that electric vehicles are in such demand, dealers are getting far more than, than sticker price. That's just not the truth. The majority of electric vehicles on the yard and the supply chain have been sitting there about twice as long in, in most cases, three times as long as internal combustion engines, and they're offering steeper price discounts. I mean, that, that's just, I mean, the, the electric vehicle market right now is about 7% of all vehicles sold. They're trying to get it to 10 or 11 or 12%, and they can't. They just can't. I mean, they're stuck on seven. And they're building electric vehicles because the government's saying build electric vehicles, and nobody's buying these electric cars. It's still about 7%. It was about 7% two years ago. It's about 7% today. And they're continuing to build electric vehicles that they aren't selling. So, so the only way to address this problem in the private sector is to stop building as many or, or, or cut prices, right? I mean, there's a price that I'm interested in an electric truck. I mean, I, I don't want an F-150 electric. I mean, I don't want a Lightning F-150 unless I could buy a brand new one for $10,000. I mean, there's a price for everything, right? I mean, everybody's in perpetual negotiation mode. Josh is. I am everybody. I don't want an electric truck. Well, you, we got one here. We'll sell you for ten grand. Okay. Uh, I might, I might, you know, that 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 invitation may be interesting mm-hmm. uh, to me. But when you call it, I mean, that's just that's just not true. When you say they're they're flying off the shelf, and because of that, they're getting far higher than then stickers, that's just not the truth. That's just not the case. The Reuters has a, a an extensive article about all these manufacturers having all this inventory on their yard, and the only way to get rid of the inventory is to cut prices, and they're cutting prices, and they're cutting prices, and they're cutting prices, and they're stuck on 7%. I mean, that's kind of, sort of, where we are. Now, will it change? I don't know. I don't have any idea if it's going to, to change or not. But, but right now, the manufacturers find the EV one of the most difficult and complex situations they found themselves in, and that includes dealing with the UAW. Now, that, that, that'll blow up a lot of the normalcies. When you, when you get these numbers that I'm talking about, let's, um, well, here you go, uh, EV inventory, 103 days of supply. I mean, this is across the board, 103 days of supply, internal combustion engines, 51 days of supply. Ford, the um, the Mustang Mach-E, 116 days of unsold inventory. I mean, they like to be somewhere between 30 and 60. I mean, you know, Ford and GM like to be somewhere between 30 and 60 days worth of supply. 
With a Mustang, they're at 116. With the F-150, they're at about 122. I mean, it's twice as much supply That's the Mustang there. and the F-150 electric. Correct. The, the Lightning F-150, um, I mean, they, there's about, well, there's 7%. I mean, it's stuck on 7%, and they're still building these cars. And the only way to address this complexity in the market is to build fewer or cut prices. I mean, if you've got if you've got 102 days worth, 103 days worth of worth of supply, people just don't want them. I mean, they they just don't want the electric vehicles yet. Now, once again, that could change, but right now, that I mean, that that's Ford GM. I mean, that's that's the Wall Street Journal, straight from the horse's mouth. Um, and and it goes on to talk about surging loan delinquencies and uh, you know the um I mean the fact that they believe. The, the average payment, guess what the average car payment in America is today? First time in history, it's seated $800, hmm. $803. I mean, that's the average car payment in America today, $803. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze, good morning. You're on. You know, the electric vehicles, just a scam, it's just evil. But, you know, you're talking about the, the code and time thing, kid. Most of the scumbags that I've dealt with in my life were wearing a coat and tie. Second and even close. But probably didn't need to wear one in the Senate. You know, I was listening to your, I had a break this morning, and I was listening to some of the things. Now, the street coat stuff can go on and on and on. It's gotten very complicated. I mean, I've seen it evolve over the past 40 odd years, and, uh, a lot of stuff they did wrong, some of the stuff they did right, some of the stuff they thought was wrong turned out to be right. But it's very complicated, and one of the problems they run into is they've got time constraints. But you can see an evolution of the shoe. You know, um, the Under Armour shoe was known for being fast. They have, they have a shoe that's really considered a fast shoe. The best offensive and defensive lineman shoes appear to be made by Nike. They seem to be more sturdy. That to kind of cover that, but they're going to evolve the shoe to where everybody's going to have a wider toe box. Now, I think that's coming. You can already buy the cost of $600. They kind of do a 3D print of your foot, just basically mold a shoe around your foot and everything. Another thing I was going to talk about, too, was I am more and more convinced that if they can't stop Donald Trump with everything they're doing, I am. I am almost certain that there will be an assassination on Donald Trump. They've got to kill him. If they if they can't stop him with all the indictments, if they can't stop him with all the things that they're doing, and if they can't even get him in prison, if they can't get him in prison, they will have to kill him. And I am certain that they will. And, you know, and the question then becomes. You know, will it really truly be so low crazy that kills him, or would it really be our government? You know, but I am, I am certain of that fact. Another thing that I've been dealing with recently in our business here at Pleasant and a lot of our clients and uh, a lot of family members, for that matter, is uh, what what these banks are going to do with these credit cards and debit cards. I mean, you know, when you, you put your money in a bank, because it's supposedly safe. And then when your money is in the bank, it's not really your money anymore once you deposit it. The bank can basically do whatever the hell they want to do with your money. But what happens when somebody steals your money out of the bank? 
I mean, is it, are you supposed to be a cybersecurity expert that the bank tell you, here you go, son, here's your debit card. Now, whatever you do, don't charge anything because you do. We're going to tell you you're careless with it. And if you put all your money in here and somebody steals it, tough. We're all going to get, you know, it's not our problem to give you your money back, even though you thought you had it in their safe. What is the bank's responsibility? Who is the person behind it? Yeah, naturally, the cyber thief is the problem, but at what point are you and I supposed to be cybersecurity talk? But we had out of our business just last month, uh, last week, actually, $3,000 taken out of one of our accounts. They got our PIN number. They got everything. About a year ago, and then they did it again, we have never activated a single debit card. One of our, we have not activated a debit card for our uh, business. We have not activated a debit card for our personal account. The debit card is actually in a safe. I had a banker tell me it's impossible for them to get it. Well, I sat there and told them, I said, well, I'm looking at my debit cards right now. They've never been activated. And I'm at the house. My wife's sitting right here. Here's a picture of them sitting in a safe. Now, how did they get my debit card? These guys are ingenious. So does the bank have to get better security? I don't know the answer, but what's going to happen to people that they don't think their money's safe at the bank? We have, like I said, we have $3,000 stolen again last last all week. They got a hold of our them. They can get your IP address 150 different ways. I had another banker say, well, that's impossible. No, it's not. They do it all the time. So we got a real issue coming up with the banking and everything. And I mean, who's going to get hold to get me left holding the bag? Now, who who, may, who puts Breeze's money back? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. You know, that's so far above my head. Uh, I have no idea. I mean, I, I really and truly, cybersecurity freaks me out. I mean, it, it honestly does. I don't understand it. I can't relate to it. How do they do what they do? Who are they? You know, would be a better. I don't know. I don't have uh, any idea. I, I tend to stick to things that I uh, can somewhat understand. But, I mean, you know, who is made? I mean, who? If, if, if the money goes missing, whose responsibility is to put the money back? You know, is, I mean, does the bank have to improve its security or do, do they have to reinsure, you know, some of the deposit insurance? I, I don't have any idea um, how you go there. I want to go back to this electric vehicle real quick. Um, I want to read it verbatim so, so you won't think I'm trying to editorialize. And then we'll go to the call. The U.S. Electric, I mean, this is a Reuters article from Detroit. The U.S. electric vehicle market is growing, but not anywhere near fast enough during the last quarter to prevent unsold EVs from stacking up at some automakers, dealerships, or to allow Tesla to offer new price cuts, according to analysis and industry data. Rising inventories and price cutting could represent only a short-term pause in EV market, but they could be signals that boosting UV EV say, or U.S. EV sales above the current 7% market share level will be more costly and difficult than previously expected, even with federal and state subsidies. Automakers uh, North America have billions of dollars in EV-related investments riding on how the next several quarters play out. If productions of EVs continue to outpace demand, let me read that again. If production of EVs continue to outpace demand, Automakers will have to choose between slashing prices and profit margins or shutting or slowing down assembly lines. There's just not a big demand for EVs that they're not getting above sticker price. The ones they are selling, they're selling at steep, 
steep discounts, and they're genuinely concerned how steep a discounts they can sell it. How much money can they lose? I mean, I said it six months ago. The best thing for auto manufacturers in the bottom line is to not sell EVs. I mean, in all honesty, they're probably better off with the EV sitting on the lot because once they execute that transaction, the law shows up. And it's just, I mean, it's phenomenal that some people still believe that this is a plan working. It is not working at all. It's, it's devastating to the auto manufacturers. I think it's devastated the consumer at some point in time. They're Billy, some are being sold to Billy Goods. And I've read more and more stories about consumer regret relating to the purchase of EVs. Hang in there, caller. We got to take a break. Got long-winded there. Got to take a break. We'll be back in. This is a short break, right? We'll be back in about two or three minutes. Back in a few. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Cocky Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike, you're on. Hey, guys. Let me um, let me dispel one of Jeff's most recent lies. Um, let's go back to the EV, the, the Ford Lightning. When Ford came out, I have been looking at uh, Teslas and all for for years, and I keep doing the research and saying, okay. That's not the battery's not quite long enough because we love football games and we used to travel a lot. We don't much anymore. So if we had a, you know, the, the Tesla would only guarantee like seventy five percent battery life after a hundred thousand miles or five years. Okay, and that's not enough for us to drive to Athens to a football game and back on a single charge. So I, I, I kept researching, kept looking, kept looking. And uh, I, I've never bought one because the, the timing is not right. <clears throat> okay? Along comes Ford, and they're lightning. And when I hear about this and I start looking at all the options and what they're doing, okay, I drive a 2013 F-150 with 235,000 miles on it, and it's my work truck. Well, my work truck rarely gets more than 90 miles from home. I mean, it's rare that I do anything. I've, I've drive to Charleston and back or Columbia and back, and I can do that on a single tank. And, you know, I, I don't plan on working the rest of my life, and then I'll have a, a nice electric vehicle. So I start looking into it when Ford announces the thing. Then they have this deal where you get on the list, you pay a $100 deposit, and you're put on a list to be able to buy the, the, the truck. And you have to pick a dealership in which – to, that you're going to buy the truck from. So I put my noggin together, and I think, okay, the bigger the dealership or bigger the city, the less likely I'll be getting one because they're only allocate so many. So I picked, um, I think it was a, the Ford dealership in Manning. That's what it was, the Ford dealership in Manning. And I paid my $100 deposit, and I'm on the list, and I get the email confirming, hey, congratulations, Mike, blah, blah, blah. So – Come to find out, within 24 hours of announcing that, they had taken, I think, 20,000 reservations. So by the time I got on the list, which was, I think I waited probably four or five weeks, by the time I got on the list, there's no telling how many were gone, you know, were, people had already paid. Well, they were only going to be able to manufacture, I believe the number was 22,000 trucks per year. So couple of months went by i got an email saying hey we appreciate you doing this but you're too deep on the list to be able to buy a truck would you like your hundred dollar deposit back or would you like to stay on the list and i said 
I'll just stay on the list because the hundred dollars is not going to kill me just sitting there in somebody else's account. Well, then I start reading articles about people, the dealerships were going to be marking these things up twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars. Now you got to realize there's three versions of the truck. There is the stripped-down work truck for somebody like the city of Florence would buy, or the water for the water department. You know, it, it's, it's not fancy. It's got no carpet. It's just it's a you cannot get the upgraded battery in that truck, and it's just plain old stripped-down work truck. That was going to be thirty-nine thousand i believe the next version was either the xl or the xlt i don't remember which what they called it and it was going to be at fifty-two thousand, and it had the option for a long-range battery it had you know all the bells and whistles had 15 electrical outlets on it you could plug it into your house and it would run your house in the case of a power outage you saw kind of neat stuff and then the third the third of the truck was the Platinum, and the Platinum was going to sell for about $90,000, and it had the autonomous driving and, and all, I mean, everything you could think of, like, you know, like the, kind of like the Plaid Tesla. Okay, so I get the notice saying, you know, you're not, do, do you want to stay on the list? And I said, yeah. So then I start reading that dealers are marking up, are going to be marking these things up twenty dollars to $25,000. And so I start reading these articles and, and searching and come to find out that's what everybody's saying. So I go on and I say, give me my $100 back because I was going to buy the $52,000 truck, which would have been by far the most I ever spent on any kind of vehicle. And, um, and they did. They refunded my $100, blah, blah. Okay. Then Ford got wind of this. Do you remember – was it the Mustang Mach 1 or something like that that they, they built very limited number? And, and if you had a, quote, the golden ticket to buy it, you could sell that golden ticket, so to speak. And, you know, the car was going to cost 250 Well, buying the golden ticket was, you know, at auction would cost you another 200000 So anyway, so that's what Ford dealers were doing. They were selling. They were trying to sell the right to buy a car from them well lo and behold ford motor company gets wind of this and this is where jeff's lies start you know to to he starts to think it's the truth because he read something from a long time ago ford motor company gets wind of this that these dealers are going to mark these cars up and they put out a press release and they say any dealer caught marking this up above the the sticker or by creatively charging people for the right to buy, will lose their privilege to sell the truck in its entirety. So, uh, the, you know, Jeff's saying that that these cars are $25,000 markup sitting on the lot. That's just not true. It's, I mean, it's just a lie. Or it's just, well, like, like Adam Carolla says, stupid or, stupid or liar, one of the two. You know, you don't know or you're lying about it. Now, Ford this year, maybe it came out last year, Ford now has four models, okay? And the model that I was going to buy is now up to $65,000. So the price is going up, but they've had three price increases trying to keep up with the production costs, which they have not been able to keep up with the production costs. 
but they can't sell the vehicles anyway. So just like you said, they're sitting on a lot. So I don't, I don't know, I don't understand how the average American can. I don't know what people have to make to drive a, you know, seventy thousand dollar, ninety thousand dollar F one fifty. So. When you gonna buy yours, Ken? Uh, I'm good. I, I'm good on, <laughs> on on what I've got. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate. It. I knew Mike had done some work. Mike texted me over the weekend and said that he'd researched because he considered buying one. I talked to two dealers. I mean, in my past life, I built truck beds, and dealers were my bread and butter. And the dealers that I talked to over the weekend admitted that it was hype. I mean, they 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 had to hype up the the vehicle. They had to convince people, you better get in line and you better get in line now. Because if you don't get in line now and pay twenty grand above sticker, you're going to have to pay twenty five or thirty grand above. I mean, it's called you know marketing. It's called sales. It's called hype. I mean, that that's what it is. But there's no analytic that proves that to be true. I mean, hype is not the truth. Some people are gullible, naive. They believe in the hype. They believe, um, and, and all of this is driven, guys, by some of the cafe standards, some of the emission standards. Remember, Mike Rickenbaugh touched on that a bit Friday. Um, some of the emission standards that, that are going to require, basically, I mean, it doesn't read like this, but, but everything I've read that I trust and find credible, they basically say that by 2032, I mean, if you, if you interpret some of the emission uh, requirements of the EPA and, and the Biden administration, by 2032, two-thirds of all cars sold in America will have to be electric vehicles. I mean, it's not the marketplace deciding that. I mean, Mike will make a decision. I'll make a decision. Josh and, and Rev will make a decision. And I'm not saying what I will or won't do. I don't have any idea what I will or won't do by the year 2032. But if you read with, with any degree of understanding and interpret some of the emission uh, requirements in the EPA and regulatory agencies and the Biden administration, by 2032, two-thirds of all vehicles sold in America will have to be electric. Now, now, that could change if you get a Republican president not as overbearing about, you know, transitioning from fossil fuel or, a, you know, a carbon economy to uh, kind of a decarbonized economy. I mean, that, all that's in the, in, the, uh, in the squishiness of policy. So who knows what Trump does if he gets elected in 2024? He'll probably do something different than, I mean, he's got a, he's got a fundamental, fundamentally different approach on energy than the, than the Democrats do. But, but it's not true that there are people waiting in line to buy electric vehicles. There are electric vehicles waiting on lots and yards and, and, and warehouses to be purchased, and they're starting to slash prices. So, so when the electric vehicle became a thing, quote, unquote, a, a lot of the companies that manufacture automobiles said, hey, it, it, I mean, how can we maximize profit? I mean, these things cost far more to build than we thought they did. I mean, that's really the fundamental of this. Um, I mean, the, the truck costs more to build than they imagined it ever would. So, so instead of selling at a loss, what do you do? You hype it. You tell Dave Baker and Josh, hey, if you want this electric vehicle, you better get in line and you better get in line now. You better send your $100 and you better be willing. I mean, that $100 basically gives you a right to pay, you know, $20,000 above sticker price. But the hype didn't pan out. The consumer was not that naive or gullible. And... And now you've got 100-plus days of electric vehicles sitting on yards that the dealerships can't sell, and they're starting to slash prices 
uh, you know, one month and then another month and then another month. And it seems to me that the market reality is when Josh owns a plumbing company and Josh buys two new pickups for his business, Josh still believes the internal combustion engine is the better choice, period. Now, now when do we get to a place of, um, you know, Mike was talking about, you know, the, um, the, the longevity of battery and the charging or, you know, the recharging of the battery. Th- those are things I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've read a lot about the lithium ion and the solid state battery and what Toyota's doing, what Tesla has done, some of the software contracts. Um, you know, Ford and GM are in some pretty serious negotiations about uh, pricing of some of the software and technology contracts. I'm not privileged to that, believe it or not. They don't let me in the corner office when they have those debates. But when you say that electric vehicles are in hot demand, that's just not the truth, that they're not in hot demand. In fact, it's easy to argue there is a declining appetite for electric vehicles. I've read some stories out there in the Wall Street Journal, peak EV. Have we already seen peak EV? What was last year, the kind of the, you know, the time we'll remember as when people kind of really wanted Uh, the electric vehicle, I believe that we should consider alternative um, sources of transportation and modes of transportation. I mean, I I want everything on the table. I want the um, the hydrogen cell, the battery, uh, the internal combustion engine. I want the marketplace to offer different options. I think that's where you get the best quality of product and the fairest price. But that's not what the government's waiting on. The government has decided in the name of knowing what the temperature of the planet Earth is going to be 100 years from now that two-thirds of all vehicles manufactured in America need to be electric vehicles. That is not a market principle. That's communism. That is the government controlling the means of production, and some out there are okay with that. I just tend to be more of a believer in the free market. And, I, you know, I, we talk about corporate capitalism and crony capitalism and all these other sorts of things, but I would rather have anything than communism. And when the government regulatory agencies say by the year 2032, two-thirds of the cars driven by Americans or at least purchased by Americans have to meet this standard, that is the government controlling the means of production. And that, by definition, is communism. And I just think, wow, I mean, if that's where we are, and that's kind of where, mm-hmm. I mean, I would argue a third of the country okay with that. You know, my, my, you know, I don't I don't think a third of the country would like to be called communist. I don't think they have a problem with being called socialist. I mean, I really don't. It's kind of a watered-down communist, communist-like. That's funny. You said if that's where we are. Well, I mean, but that's it is where, where we, are. we are. That's exactly where we are. Yeah. I mean, roughly 40% of Americans are perfectly fine with the government dictating the principles of our market. And, and I just think that is a direct violation of what got us to where we are today. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. We discussed briefly in our previous hour the UAW strike. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Joins us, Jeff. Good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Good morning. Uh, tell us exactly where we stand in regards to the UAW strike? Yeah, no, well, negotiations continue between the UAW and Ford, GM, and Stellantis in this first ever standoff between the union and all three automakers at the same time, uh, with workers across the country continuing to say that, look, we're, we're going we're gonna to do this as long as we need to. 
uh, in the fight for more pay and benefits and job protections. Stellantis over the weekend did hike its offer to UAW members to include pay raises of nearly 21%, including uh, an immediate 10% increase. The UAW uh, is calling for a 40% hike with a 32% uh, with a 32-hour work week, uh, as well as other job protections as we enter the fourth uh, day of targeted strikes. Um, at a GM plant in Missouri, a Ford plant in Michigan, a Stellantis Jeep plant in Ohio, and with the ripple effects also now starting uh, at other Ford and, and GM plants. Um, it's a stalemate. That's that's the latest that we have right now. It, it's a stalemate, and, and both sides appear to be digging in. We heard from President Biden late on Friday urging the automakers to share in their record profits uh, with these workers, uh, as it is, as, as the strike, you know, tests his assertion that he's the most pro labor president ever. Uh, he's dispatched some of his uh, senior advisors to Detroit to try and help out. We'll see what happens. But, you know, as we've talked about, this, this fight really is largely about the transition to auto, to, to an all electric future. Uh, and, and, and moving away from gas combustion engines, because what does that mean? That means auto jobs, as we know them in Detroit and in other places, are gone. Um, this is about the subsidies, the billions of dollars in subsidies that the Biden administration has given these, these EV battery plants in, in other parts of the country that are largely non-unionized, that are largely lower paying and uh, owned by other countries uh, like South Korea. Uh, for example, and and uh, you know, Q you know, President Trump because he's now saying that that um, you know he's it, it's, it's interesting to see how this plays out because you know you were we were we were thinking about you know how would President Biden react? Well, he's throwing the auto industry into the bus, saying that we want our workers to have more money, and now you've got President Trump saying, uh, you know, throwing throwing uh, um, President Biden under the bus and saying. Uh, this is this is a, you know the, the all electric future is not going to work. It's only going to send jobs to China. Uh, you won't have an industry in Detroit and other places across this country if we continue this this scam of a, a, a green future in terms of, in terms of electric cars. And so, uh, and you've got companies like Ford saying, "Look, we can't afford these these pay hikes because we're we're." We're so heavily invested in an all-electric future, and, and you know, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. Um, can it really be interesting to see how this plays out? Jeff, I'm asking you to editorialize, and that's probably unfair, but you kind of went there just briefly. Yeah. This could be a very pivotal issue in the 2024 presidential election. Is that fair to say? No, no doubt about it. No doubt about it, uh, because. You know, for for one, uh, the UAW is very influential. It's 150,000 uh, union members, and many of them voted for President Trump back in 2016, uh, and, and and helped him carry Michigan. Um, he's he's courting them. He's courting them right now. In fact, President Trump is is going to possibly. We're told he's weighing a visit uh, to Detroit. Uh, outside the, uh, the 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 Ford plant uh, where where workers are striking, and and he's going to talk to them and say, look, you know, you you might get some pay, you might get some new benefits or added protections, but this really is about your future, and you won't have these jobs uh, if we if we go all electric uh, at some point, which is what the, the government is forcing on us. And so, um, yeah, this is 
this has everything to do with the 2024 election. Very well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time. Have a great day. You bet. Let, let's stay here for a second, guys, because I think this is kind of interesting. N- now we're off into politics, right? I mean, we're talking about auto manufacturers and contract negotiations, and now uh, imagine we're off into, into politics. And there was a day uh, fairly recently that it didn't matter what the Democrat did. The labor unions were going to line up behind uh, the Democrat. And it does seem the bosses, you know, the majority of fundraising and, and, and you know, giving is being uh, to Biden. But I think Trump's got a hand to play here. Uh, and I think this is kind of in Trump's wheelhouse, you know, telling the story of, well, you know the reason you're in this fix. I mean, the reason you're in this fix is this transition to EVs will require 40% fewer workers. That's you. So in essence, Joe Biden is forcing the business of auto manufacturing to transition into a place that's going to cost you your job or 40% of you are going to lose your job. Um, Forget the fact that the majority of incentives given to the renewable or excuse me, the green energy sector have been to foreign companies. I mean, the battery manufacturers, I mean, the majority of battery manufacturing is done in places other than America. The majority of subsidies have been given to um, South Korean, Chinese, Indian um, companies. And, you know, that that's where a majority of taxpayer incentives have been given. So basically, I mean, Trump will do this. I mean, he, he'll argue that the Democrats are the reason that, that you're forced to be striked. Now, I think the UAW, I mean, they're not run by morons. They're, they're run by union thugs, but they're not dumb. And I think they see... Um, the 40% fewer employees. So if, if we're going to end up with 40% fewer employees, then we got to get every dollar we can for the ones that will be left standing. I mean, in essence, that's what. And this is a major, major negotiation because you are got, you know, 14 months from now we'll have a presidential election. And the next president could undo all of these um, restrictions by EPA and some of the regulatory. I mean, it's a very complex matter, and I think it deserves – a lot of consideration in the presidential campaign. I think it's interesting that Jeff said that the Trump campaign is considering a visit to Detroit. Well, but I think it puts Michigan back in play. I mean, I think, you know, wow. and that would be a good question for Robert. I mean, Rob Robert could answer that. What would it take to put Michigan back in play? I mean, I've said, you know, Georgia is going to be red. Ohio and Florida are red. Um, you got to go to Pennsylvania or some combination of Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada. You can't, I mean, Michigan's just too hard for a Republican to win, uh, but 150,000 auto workers, I mean, that's a big deal. Um, and I don't know what margin Trump lost Michigan by in uh, in 20, but I mean, Trump had a record. You know, people tried to sell Biden as this moderate Democrat, this centrist Democrat that restored normalcy back in our politics. You know, this crazy uh, Cheeto Jesus, we've had enough of that. Let's get back to normal. I think auto manufacturing, by and large, likes normal. I mean, they don't like chaos. They would rather, you know, the union boss be on the good list with the president and some of the uh, congressional leadership. But but now you've got this, this – I mean, it, it's hard for Biden to say I'm on your side. I mean, let's say Biden goes to Dearborn and meets with union leaders and says I'm on your side. I mean, what does the rank and file – auto worker believe about the Biden administration policy because it's the Biden's policy that are forcing the auto industry to transition. Once again, 2032, it doesn't matter how you interpret some of the language in the regulation. In 2032, two-thirds of all autos manufactured in America are going to be 
uh, electric if they meet the criteria that the Biden administration. So if you've got this double whammy uh, by 2032, which is eight years from the next presidential election, so eight years from now, we're going to have to have two of every third, two of every three vehicles electric made and, and uh, sold in America. And we've already admitted it's going to decline the workforce by 40%. I mean, how does Biden wiggle off the hook there? I mean, I, 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 where do you go there? I mean, it would, it would be hard for somebody like Reagan or, or Obama to do that. Clinton, I mean, a, a real talented politician would have a time at that. I mean, Biden's not a talented um, politician. So how do you wiggle off the hook there? I don't know. I mean, he brought this about um, himself. I mean, the Biden EPA and the Biden regulatory agencies that, you know, kind of um, meddle in the auto sector. I mean, they're the ones that are making these requirements. And, and I just, you know, what? The, the better question would be Trump's message. What does Trump say? I mean, is it energy independence? Is it, um, is it you know, hey, we're going to build more internal combustion engines because we're going to be inter- more energy independent, and being more energy independent creates not the despair in, in that side of the – I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of an interesting uh, proposition. Uh, I, I want let, to – let's stay in this lane because it's kind of interesting to me. Um, pre-COVID, post-COVID, you know, you got AD and BC, you got pre-Second World War, the post, uh, pre, you know, uh, uh, pre-Roman Empire, post-Roman Roman Empire, some of these um, designations of lines of demarcation. But but I read something over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal, actually last week, uh, um, August 21st, so three weeks ago, um, talking about pre-COVID. And, you know, the price increase of cars and uh, five years ago, pre-COVID, there were 12 models of new cars that sold for less than $20,000. Today, there's only one new car in America that sells for less than $20,000 brand new. I was thinking about the price is right. Bob Barker passed away recently uh, at the age of, what, 91 or somewhere there. Yeah, okay, 99. I'm sorry. Um, 99 <laughs> made it almost to hundred yeah, without going over n- nearly made it spaying and neutering pants. I <laughs> remember when he'd always <laughs> close out by anyway. Um, what, one of the story, my, my grandfather didn't care much for football. Um, and he retired and he'd watch some of the game shows. And I, I remember he knew I liked ball. Uh, that's what he called it. Ball, you know, he <laughs> likes ball. So, um, <laughs> on new year's Eve, I remember one day he told me, he said, they start them damn ball games now before the price is right even comes on. <laughs> they start them at like 11 o'clock in the morning. They got so many of them damn ball games. They start them now before the price is right even starts. I'll never forget. And he was sincere. I mean, upset about one day a year, one day a year, not to be able to watch the, uh, the price is right. But Josh wouldn't know this, but Rev, I think you would. There was a day that they would give away a new car, and the first price was always three. Not for thirty thousand. Yeah. I mean it was three thousand seven hundred and forty seven dollars, three thousand nine hundred and twelve dollars. I mean, imagine now. I mean it, it's it's absurd uh the, the, the price increase we've seen in, in the auto industry. And I mean you could blame a myriad, you could blame labor contracts and yeah, you could blame, you know, we don't we, we have to export, excuse me, have to import some of the uh we don't our, our supply chain and manufacturing capacity is not what it once was but i just thought that was kind of an interesting benchmark that the mitsubishi mirage hatchback 
is the only car in America today that sells for less than $20,000. Now, if you're willing to spend more than a hundred grand, there are 32 models. There are 32 models of new car in excess of a hundred thousand dollars. There's one less than 20 grand. Wow. Is what I say. Let's go to wow. the phone. Here is Michael in Irmo. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Good morning, fellas. Uh, Going down the interstate here, 26 from uh, Irmo to Orangeburg. Uh, all of this EV talk is real great. You know, we're going to be able to drive hither and yon and so forth. But uh, everybody doesn't want to talk about the trucks. And uh, the last time I checked, fellas, um, there wasn't a grocery store, a restaurant, a variety store of any kind that doesn't have a diesel truck backing up to it once a week or more than that. And the idea that we're going to get along without diesel trucks is just kind of ridiculous. What I don't understand with Biden, other than uh, the obvious, uh, he is the one that's created inflation with the fuel price of diesel and the groceries that we buy and everything else, including that $3,000 car you just talked about, because the government is the only one that prints money. And they've printed so damn much, it's worthless. And uh, I just don't understand anybody talking about going all the VEVs because you take the uh, majority of the weight and transfer the batteries in a diesel truck uh, which means your usable load is less, they can't make as much money, and on and on and on. But uh, enjoyed the show. By the way, I wanted to tell you, tell Bolt tomorrow, I'll probably be listening. I love learning about history when I don't have a test at the end of the day. <laughs> there you go. Thank y'all. I, I can relate to that. We'll no, no question about it. You know, I don't consider myself to be much of an expert in anything, but I spent nearly all of my adult life in transportation. I mean, you know, we, we manufactured truck beds. We, we sold, we bought and sold trucks. And so, so I understand that sector of the economy, not from a, from a seminar or a book or a, or a work session. I mean, I live that every day of my life the people I depended on to keep my family fed. I mean, they, they, they had genuine concerns about the sector. So some of the, um, uh, so, some of, some of the additives in diesel fuel now, added expenses, you know, some of the emission standards were always changing and creating, you know, what, what we consider to be a damaging effect, but, but I just don't know. And, and once again, I'm not an engineer. Uh, I'm certainly not a designer, but I don't know how you recreate the torque needed to get things done. And I'm talking about in rail in farming in in construction. I'm talking about bulldozers, forget trucks. I mean, we're talking about F one fifties, but that's cool. But, but guys, F-150s isn't what makes this country go. I mean, the, you know, the, I mean, the, 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 the shipping freight containers. I mean, the, the, the ships that, that go from the, you know, the, the Asian markets to the American markets, from the, the European markets to the Americans and back. I mean, the, the planes. Um, I mean, I read a while back the torque necessary to get a 757 cargo plane airborne. I mean, once you get it in the air, it takes about 30% of what it does to get it off the ground. 
But, I mean, getting it off the ground is, is quite the feat. And, and I'm not saying we can't do it. But we're talking about in California. They, I mean, Gavin Newsom has basically said that diesel trucks and diesel-burning construction equipment will be illegal by 2035. Okay. I mean, it, Mike's talking about, Mike's worried he can't get Athens in back. You know, a football game without charging stations. I mean, imagine how many tractors and bulldozers and backhoes and trains and airplanes. And, I mean, it's just unfathomable that, that we're going to risk that much of advance. I mean, we depend on that. Not to mention the charging and electricity I mean, infrastructure needed. Well, yeah. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, we, we all, the things that we buy don't grow in the store. I mean, there's not a, there's not a, um, I mean, there's not a milk tree that there's not a grocery tree in a grocery store. I mean, those groceries are on a farm that those groceries are farmed by farmers who depend on diesel powered tractors and equipment and pickers and, and things like that. And, and then they, you know, they leave there and they get in a train or a plane or a truck. It's just, it's hard. It's unfathomable to, for me to believe that by 20 in 10 years, the state of California produces more food than any state in the world. And Gavin Newsom says in 10 years, we're going to make illegal diesel burning trucks and equipment. I mean, how do you clean? How do you clear lots? How do you develop land? How, how do you farm? I mean, maybe the technology is, is there. I don't know. It's just hard for me to believe that if we can't get a truck to Athens and back without worrying about charging, how do we farm? How do we construct? How do we develop? How, how do we fly things from point A to point B? How do we train things from point A to point B? You're talking about enormous amounts of energy it takes and torque it takes to get, you know, product A from point A to point B. And, and I just, you know, my, my, my concern is this, Rev. The people making these decisions have never spent a day on a farm. They've probably never been on a construction site. They wouldn't have a clue how to load or unload an airplane or truck or trailer. I mean, that, that's my problem. you got these careers bureaucrats who went to Harvard and got a fancy degree, and now they're the smartest guy in the world, and they're going to tell the economy how it needs to perform and how it needs to power itself. I mean, that, that's what's so wild to me. People that know nothing about power, nothing about business, are making all the decisions on power and business that, that all of us will be left to, to live under. That's just crazy and dangerous. Take a break. Back in a few. You won't be able to apply. You apply with an electric tractor if, this, uh, if, those, if those crazy Democrats get in their way. The field will be grown up head high. Nothing will be able to. Anyway, um, I hope we can transition. And I mean that sincerely. I just don't trust the government to be in charge mm -hmm. of the transition. Let's Na go to the Name moment. me something the government does a good job. Uh, that's a good question. I've tried hard. Yeah. And um, the interstate highway. Oh, there you go. I mean, the interstate highway. I'll, I'll give, give them credit for yep. that. Yeah. And planes don't crash every day. I mean, planes don't run into one another every day. And I think most of the, the air traffic controllers are federal employees of the federal government. Again, so, yeah. That's but, a very good and, point. And I guess you could find some things they sure. do okay. Uh, <laughs> but but most things, they it, it's, uh, it's over budget and underperform uh, as expected. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. You're on. Hey, good morning, guys. How you doing? Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, Dave, I sent you a, a little uh, photo the other day. Did you get that? I did see it on Friday. Um, I need to go back okay. and find it again. Was it a, was it a right, picture well, of a, a sticker with a markup it on sure it? It was. 
yeah. Uh, do you remember what the number was? I don't, but I can look it up, or you can tell us. Okay, it was an 8,000 Ford F-150 black sitting on Mike Rickenbaugh's lot that was selling for $111,000. Yep, I see it, and it has a markup of thirty. $30,000 AMD. Yep. So, you know, I, I know you came back from your break and said, huh, I've seen one of these uh, F-150 sitting on a lot for how many months did you say, Ken? Uh, the, the the reporting agency says F-150 EV inventory, 116 days of unsold inventory. The internal combustion engine, uh, F-150, 51 days. Right. You think they're charging an extra thirty grand? I don't have any idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you know, hey, uh, it's it's. Uh, so you, you you're sticking to your comment. You believe that electric vehicles are in such demand that dealers are charging thirty thousand dollars over sticker price. I mean, that that's where do. you're sticking to they, that. I'm I'm sorry, but that that's at Mike Rickenbaugh Ford. Well, right I mean, I, I can show you about eight or ten sent to me over the weekend. One after the other, after the other, after the other. Price cut in January. Price cut in uh, in March. Price cut in in July. Three hundred and forty days on on the yard. I guarantee you they have price cuts, but that doesn't mean they're selling them from MSRP still. No, they're not selling. That's the point. I'm. I mean, the hundred and sixteen <laughs> days of being on yards. No, they're not selling. That's the point. I'm. I mean, the hundred and sixteen days of being on hello. hello. He turned on his Bluetooth and it's switching over. Oh, we'll, we'll wait. Nothing going on here. <laughs> you yeah, there, Jeff? So, yeah, yeah, I am. Sorry about that. My uh, my Ford was kicking in. <laughs> so, um, you know, as far as the electrical ve- electric vehicles go, like I, I don't see anybody uh, doing anything but raising their hands and high-fiving when South Carolina gets that battery plant. I don't see anybody doing anything but raising their hand and high-fiving when Volkswagen decides to build the Scout here. Um, you know, the auto workers, they're, they're in a transition. But we went through something like this. If you go back and you look at the 1980s and the, the death nail that was put in um, supposedly the U.S. automakers, we can't compete with Japan. We're not going to be able to do it. Um, it was like doom and gloom, Okay. And the auto workers right now, um, they're doing what they they need to do. They have leverage right now. They're losing their leverage. So they're, they're trying to maximize their uh, power by trying to get them to the negotiating table now before it's too late. Um, as far as what Donald Trump would do, you act like this just happened after Biden got elected. I mean, you see that this has been coming for 15 years, right? What has been coming for 15 years? A transition. Sure, a a market-driven transition. I mean, I I am all in support of a market-driven transition. The Biden administration's regulations will require two of every three vehicles made in America to be electric by the year 2032. I mean, th- th- there are independent right. analysis. I mean, that I, I, I've read some fairly conservative-minded analysis that say that. The independent-minded analysis agree that by the year 2032, if, if the Biden regulations aren't changed or adjusted or calibrated, two of every three vehicles sold in America 
will be required via the regulation to be electric. That's not the free market. And I said Friday, Jeff, and this is where you and I fundamentally disagree. You're comfortable with the government deciding what a man and woman should be able to drive. I'm not. I mean, I'm just not. I'm not that trusting of government, and I respect those who do. But, but in essence, you're okay with the government saying, I'm not going to let the market decide the, 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 the pace of the transition. I'm going to let government do it, and that's what we're doing. The government is forcing okay. a transition from one sort of proven vehicle or motor transportation to another that we have a lot of questions for or a lot of questions about. And if the market were able to digest and work through that as the market could, I'd probably trust EV outcomes far more than I do now. Okay. And sorry, do you, do you think this is the first time the government's done something like that? It doesn't mean I, 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 I've the never vehicle? liked that. I mean, it doesn't matter about what time, many times the government's done this or, uh, know, or not done I, this. I know I mean, you've never liked it. I, I just don't, I don't like the government deciding what I've got to drive, and that's what the government is trying to do. They're trying to regulate the auto industry to force people to drive a car that they want people to drive. I'm not comfortable with that. Never will be comfortable yeah. with that. And, 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 you know, this goes back to the 70s, right? I mean, like, this is not a new phenomenon that you're, you're – you, you act like this is unprecedented. No, no, no. I'm not it's acting not. like this is unprecedented. I even said this morning there are 40% of Americans who agree with you. I mean, they're socialists. They admit they're socialists. They admit they would rather the government decide what people drive than the market. I'm not one of those 40%. I would be in the other 60% camp. And it's deeply alarming to me that 40% of Americans have that kind of faith in a federal government. You know, it, it's it's funny if you if you listen to your uh, Jesus Gito, as you call him, talk about how oh they're trying to uh, make electric tanks. Do you believe the government's trying to do that? Electric tanks. Oh yeah, I would imagine. I mean, we, we should always be trying to be better. Whatever we're doing, whether it's no, airplanes, no, I mean, trains, I mean, like, trucks, nobody tanks. No, <laughs> nobody in the military saying make an electric tank. Okay. Um, they're coming out with new fuels for jet engines, the renewable jet fuel. Is that a bad thing or an okay thing? That would be a great thing. Okay. They're making renewable diesel fuel. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? That would be a great thing. Okay. So why don't – what is the fight if you set some regulations or some goalposts to make the country more energy independent. What is the fight to make? Because you're taking away freedom of choice. And that is a fundamental of America. Americans deserve the right to choose whether they want to drive an internal combustion engine or an electric vehicle. The government doesn't. I mean, you're, 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 you're couching this argument as if the government is some supreme intellect out there somewhere in the ether they're, they're this wizard behind the curtain, and if we'd only listen to what they say needs to happen, we'll all be better off. And I just don't have that kind of faith in the government. There's nothing wrong with innovation. There's nothing wrong with, with um, entrepreneurship. There's nothing wrong with, with, with one day maybe not having as much carbon emitted to, to power our economy. There's nothing wrong with that. I just trust the free market, and, and I don't like the government meddling in the free market as much as you're comfortable. That's the fundamental disagreement we have here. But 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 we don't have a disagreement about the 
the state of auto, uh, excuse me, electric vehicles in America today, they aren't selling. They just simply are not. Okay. They're, they're stuck on about 7% of the market share. The government is incentivized as much as they can, and they're stuck at about 7%. And now they're going to have to decide whether they stop producing as many or begin seriously and significantly slashing prices. The market is going to address that in some way, shape, or form. But but you're talking about two things. You're talking about a macro and a micro. The micro is right now, there's just not an appetite for the amount of electric vehicles the government is forcing or encouraging or incentivizing these manufacturers to build. The macro is, by 2032, are we going to have two of every three vehicles on the road uh, electric, I, I, you know, because the government regulations demand to require that. I'm no, I'm not trusting in that. I, I'll accept the macro, the micro debate, as as Jeff believes that electric cars are a better choice than ICEs. I, I don't. We have a fundamental disagreement, but that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't rock the boat, but so much. The 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 major yeah. challenge is to force auto manufacturers to not make internal combustion engines anymore. I mean, that, that's, uh, excuse my French, that's a big-ass decision the government is making for the auto industry. And I trust the auto industry to make that decision a lot more than I do and some bureaucrat in, in a government agency. Yeah, so so the electric vehicle's been around for a while, okay? Uh, GM had a, a vehicle that they put out in the marketplace in the 90s. And they went out and collected every one of them and wouldn't sell them. You know, and maybe you don't, um, that electric vehicles tend to have a longer lifespan. Now, um, it, like with the iPad, like if you make an iPad too good. Jeff, you're making a lot of assumptions. Out. You're saying the electric vehicle has a longer lifespan than the internal combustion engine. How many 2011 electric cars are on the road today? We're talking about electric motors. How many 2,000? How many? You said electric cars. How many 2,011? How many? How many ten-year-old electric cars are on the road today? Can you do me a favor? How many? No, but answer my question. How many ten-year-old electric cars are on the road today? Well, Tesla's the only one with a commercial electric vehicle that's been on the road. I would. I would imagine the answer is somewhere in the neighborhood of one-tenth of one percent of all cars on the road today would be 10-year-old electric vehicles. But you just said they're more dependable than internal combustion engines. They they have a longer life expectancy. You're making projections based on some MSNBC article you watched. Hey, Sean... Your Sean Hannity trick's pretty pretty cute. That's not that's a not, trick, not Jeff. You you it made a, a you said no. Let's stop now. Stop. You said the electric vehicle is more has a has a longer life expectancy. The internal combustion engine. Did you or did you not say that? Because and, and I the simply motor will I, last longer. I, I simply the asked you how, how many twenty ten electric cars are on the road today. The motor will last longer. Can you acknowledge that a motor lasts longer, an electric I, motor lasts longer? I, I, I would imagine in some cases they do, in some cases they don't. we got to take a break, Jeff. Thank you for the so call. You're, you're um, I mean, di- diesels are pretty dependable. I mean, There's a reason diesel engines are in airplanes and yachts and, and some of these others. I, you're, you're making a hypothetical. You're, you're basing an argument on a belief in government. I just don't share that belief in government. I mean, if the EPA says something, people like Jeff believe it. If the DOJ says something, people like Jeff believe it. I don't trust the government. 
as much as 40% of Americans tend to. 843-661-0937. If you've got a 10-year-old electric vehicle, call in and let us know how that baby's running. Take a break back in a few. You know, I consider Jeff somewhat of a friend, and I mean this sincerely, but our recent conversations make me want to go buy a V12. I mean, it does. It makes me want to go buy something that gets like six gallons per mile um, just and just just rev it up. You know what I mean? Just rev it up in, in front of um, in front of every six house with solar panels like on top. Um, but but let, let's stay. Well, let's go to the fall. We got a call. Let's go there. But I want to come back and walk through the series of steps that the government took to kind of get us here. Because once again, the micro debate we're having are electric vehicles selling as quickly as they thought or hoped they would? No. Will they? I don't know. Don't have any idea what the future of EVs holds. I mean, there's some out there that believe EV peak has already happened. It's just not going to work. I, I'm not one of those. But, I, but Jeff's position is that there's such high demand, they're, they're putting additional markups on them because people are willing to pay that much more. And he sent you evidence to that point. I've got a lot of evidence that, that's, you know, kind of says, no, that's not um, the case. Let's go to the phone. Keith in Myrtle Beach. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning. How you guys doing today? Hey, sir. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I call in and I listen to your show all the time. This is my first time calling in. Uh, and it's kind of in reference to Jeff. Uh, I respect everybody's opinion and freedom of speech, which I have served my country for. But uh, sometimes I think he speaks from the wrong end. Um, I'm a mechanic and millwright, and I do work on electric engines and motors and internal combustibles. I would like for Jeff to tell me how many 1906 electric motors or 1928 electric motors that are still in function in reference to a 1906 Harley-Davidson and 1928 A-models. I don't know where he gets his information from, but he needs to quit living under that rock that he's under. He tell y'all to always pull your head out the sand. Maybe he needs to crawl out from under that rock and quit being a sheep because some of his information is just mongoloid information. Thank you, Keith. Appreciate it. Well, let me, let's be fair to Jeff. Jeff has a certain degree of faith in government that most of us don't. I mean, is that fair? I mean, the mind of a liberal, the mind of somebody who's less conservative than I. Um, and, and once again, I'm not the one to say that I have all the answers. I've never been that guy, um, except after a few cool ones. Um, <laughs> but but <laughs> when I'm stone sober as I am on the radio, I'll admit that some of my opinions are just that. I mean, they're opinions. I, I, I don't pull them out of my rear end. I mean, they, they're, they're based on some interpretation of what I believe um, to be true. And when we began debating uh, the demand of, of electric vehicles and the supply of electric vehicles, Jeff said something that I took exception with. I think Jeff probably wants to believe that government got it right. Because once again, sympathetic to government. I, I got a good one of my best friends in this world. And I agree that he's more sympathetic to government than I am. I don't call him a moron and an idiot. He doesn't call me a moron and an idiot. He respects my uh, perspective, and I respect his. I'm just one that does not trust the government. So so how do we get here? 
Um, I mean, in the macro of all macros, somebody one day, for whatever reason, I would never speculate on what the reason is except to say money's the answer. Now, what's the question? But one day somebody said, I believe the planet is warming. Hmm. I thought the planet was cooling. Remember Time Magazine in the 70s said, we're at the, um, I mean, it, uh, an ice age is inevitable. We're going to have an ice age. There's no way around it. Uh, you know, ozone layers and aerosols. We did some things. We didn't do some other things. Uh, but anyway, at, in the beginning, someone said that the earth is warming. And out of that came a lot of government research, a lot of government opinion, a lot of government, um, you know, funded research that said, yes, it is. It absolutely is. But why? And then other government research was done and other government money was put in play and other bureaucrats said, because we're burning too much carbon. I mean, the industrial revolution combined with all these modes of transportation and out of that came, you know, a, um, I don't know, a, uh, a carbon emitted enough to warm the planet. The atmosphere of the planet earth is actually warming. Now I believe that the last 30 years aside of the last 10, the climate is probably incrementally warmed at, at a, at a very, very small degree, but I, I would accept that. I mean, I think it's cyclical. I mean, I think a lot of this is God ordained. I mean, I, you know, I'm a person who believes in, 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 in God, the creator. And I think God created, uh, you know, a, uh, an ecosystem and universe of which we understand some and don't under, understand a lot of others. But when you went and that, that, so that's the macro, I mean, some government, <laughs> some government opinion said the earth is warming endorsed by another government opinion said, yes, it's warming. And here's why. And out of that came, okay, how do we stop emitting as much carbon? Well, we got to stop burning fossil fuel. And, and you know, capitalists going to capitalize, right? I mean, that's what capitalists do. So you start kind of lining up in favor of government. And, and out of that comes a, um, uh, you know, a debate that we never had. <laughs> and, and that is the debate about climate change, right? I yeah, mean, you it, can't even really question well, what I mean, they It say. became a religion. I mean, you worship at the altar of, but, but I still believe that, the most, the most troubling part of this to me is how many people are willing to take government at its word. The overwhelming majority of research has been done by government-funded agencies and operations. That the government said the earth is warming. The government said that, um, that carbon emitted is the reason. The government said if we can only stop burning as much fossil fuel. And the government said and we're not going to have a debate. And that really goes to the cathedral, the monolia. Um, you got, you know, the reporting agencies, the media. Um, it's kind of interesting. I found that Reuters article. And the reason that I kept the Reuters article, there are not many people in Reuters that don't want climate change to be real. I mean, they want to be right. They, they, they want to force electric vehicles. They would be part of the cathedral. I mean, cathedral, non-cathedral, Reuters would be in the camp of cathedralist, um, so to speak. And, and all of a sudden... You've got another government agency requiring of a private sector something as important as the auto industry. I mean, that's an important industry in our country, enormously important. Um, you know, we're not at the mercy of the auto industry, but we depend on them to build cars that are dependable and reliable and affordable and, and you know, accomplish the mission of getting from point A to point B. They build trucks for contractors and, 
you know, uh, I mean, that, that's a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal to allow them to be prosperous and and innovative and entrepreneurship or entrepreneur like. And, uh, you know, but, but, but government agencies tend to have a high opinion to their opinion. There you go. That's a good way to say it. Government agencies have a very high opinion of their opinion. So government agencies' opinion is the climate is, the planet is warming. Government agencies' opinion is we know why. Government agencies' opinion is we're emitting too much carbon. A government agency's opinion is we got to stop emitting too much carbon. Government agency's opinion is well, let's stop. Let, let's force companies to build non-internal combustion engine cars. Let's force them to build electric vehicles. I mean, that's kind of how you get where we are. There's nothing about the market in play here. This is all government-driven, and it goes all the way back to Al Gore and John Kerry being credentialed bureaucrats. I mean, one's a former vice president. One's a former. Uh, presidential candidate, how could they be wrong? Of course they can't be wrong. Not when you talk about the, you know, um, Keith from Myrtle Beach talking about internal combustion engines and how long they've lasted. Now, I'll I'll agree with this. There are fewer moving parts in an electric engine than there are in an internal combustion engine, whether it's diesel or gasoline. But there's no doubt about it. There are fewer moving parts. Therefore, you would believe the lifespan would be longer. But, but I asked the question, how many 2010 diesel engines are out there still operating at full speed? How many 2010 gasoline engines are operating at full efficiency or peak efficiency? And how many electric cars are on the road today? See, you're not opposed to electric vehicles, Rip. Not at all. I'm not opposed to electric vehicles at all. I, I just want the market to dictate when, where, and how. Exactly. Jeff is very comfortable. And I think I'm not putting words in Jeff's mouth. I think he's expressed himself enough that we know he's this. demonstrated. Je- Jeff is very comfortable in the government forcing you down a road instead of the market opening different, uh, you know, avenues and and opportunities and and options. That's just that's where I land. I, I, I'll I'll say this. I hope there's a day I have enough confidence in an EV to buy it and believe I've made the best choice. But, but I want the market to dictate the terms and conditions of which I conclude that is the decision I need to make, not some bureaucrat who knows nothing about energy and nothing about business. I got to believe that Jeff is, and this is my assumption, but I assume he's a believer in climate change and he thinks it's an existential threat, existential threat to the planet if we don't convert to electric vehicles and which you know some liberals and climate change activists believe. So I guess he's a true believer, and this is one way he expresses. And I respect that. I just passionately disagree. Right. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Hello, Dale. Okay, guys. Um, So I'm originally from Michigan. I was born and raised there. I left when I was 18 years old. My father and my father-in-law both worked for Chevrolet in Flint, Michigan. The water was better then. Um, Jeff is is right in some ways, and he's he, he's a little mistaken. Okay, actually, electric vehicles are older than what you think. I was helping a guy tear apart tear, tear a wall out of his house one time. Behind that wall, we found a, 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 a I believe it was either late twenties or early thirties. I want to say nineteen twenty nine. General Motors uh, electric car charger. They had them as far back as then. It didn't work. Okay, they may, you know, we looked it up and they made a very small number of these. It was very wealthy people that bought them and they didn't work. Okay, an electric motor 
it's not an electric engine in an electric car. It's a motor. It's just like the motor in your ceiling fan. It's like the motor in your, in your uh, garbage disposal. Electric motor is an electric motor. They have controls that can be different, but the motor itself inside is a bunch of a copper wire wound around a steel frame with a rotor in it that magnetism from electricity causes to turn. Okay. Yes, uh, electric motors can last a long time. It, it's like anything else. I've seen, we, you know, when I was working for the hospital, you guys know where I worked. I was in uh, maintenance. We'd have to buy these motors, and we'd get whole batches of them. They'd be bad from the manufacturer. A lot of things go into all this. At the end of the day, what y'all are talking about, but nobody's put a word on it, and Breeze hasn't called in that I've heard today, and he would have, it's control. It's all about control. Jeff is completely under the government's control. He's a good little Democrat. And he's right where they want him. He is saying the things he's watching. He's getting his information from the places they want to get it from. Uh, and, and he's a good little Democrat. Uh, the, the, the guy from Myrtle Beach used the word that I like, sheep. They do whatever they're told. They, 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 they do it without question. Uh, and you wonder how much of this is interconnected. They're trying to get us to buy electric cars because they want uh, uh, th this whole gender thing to go through and 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 the whole gay thing. Uh, this stuff is all in, you know, they've got a big uh, plan, the, the whole Obama group. They're pulling the strings. And, and how much of this is really what we think it's about and how much of it's about other things? You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Um, where does the lithium come from? I mean, we're, we're talking lithium about mines. Well, it's almost like we, um, well, I mean, let, let's, let's go here. You ready? I mean, let, let's assume for argument's sake that some of the liberal mindset is right. That fossil fuel is emitting the carbon that is causing the planet to warm. I mean, for argument's sake, let's say, okay, we'll give the liberal that. We'll give the true believer in climate change. I mean, once again, we've got an official stance on climate change. We just don't know. We don't know. I mean, we believe the climate is changing. We have no idea how much man is contributing to the changing of the climate. But for argument's sake, let's give the liberal the benefit of the doubt. Let's give the true believer in man-made climate change the benefit of the doubt. And let's say that, you know, we're sure that if we can emit, um, if we can emit 25% less carbon by replacing carbon, excuse me, replacing internal combustion engines, um, two of three, I mean, that, that, that reduces. Now, forget China. I mean, that's the largest polluter on the planet, India, second largest polluter on the planet. They're not doing anything. I mean, you know, but we're going to do our, we're, we're going to be good boys. I mean, we're going to be, we're going to be good boys and girls and be controlled by the government. And China will keep building, you know, coal plants and India will keep building coal plants. So they'll, they'll, they'll provide energy more efficiently than, than we will, but we're doing the virtuous thing. I mean, we're, we're trying our best to save the planet. So, so for, for argument's sake, let's give the liberal that benefit of the doubt. Rev has agreed that we need to burn less fossil fuel. Rev has agreed. He's been convinced that, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I've read a lot about it. I've, I've tried to understand it. I mean, I've looked at the pros and cons. I believe that the planet is warming, and I believe man-burning fossil fuel is a large contributor to that planet. Do we have any idea? Because you don't. Guys, I, I'm going to be real crude and crass here for a second. You ready? You don't fart in an engine and it run. I mean, there's a battery that has to be built. So, so where does the lithium come from? Where does the cobalt come from? Where does the magnesium come from? Where does the nickel come from? Where does the graphite 
come from? I mean, all those are natural minerals that have to be mined, right? I mean, what, what is the environmental consequence of mining for cobalt, mining for magnesium, mining for, for graphite and nickel, mining for lithium? I mean, what, what is the consequence of the planet? Do we have any idea, Rev, if burning fossil fuel is worse for the planet than mining for all of these ingredients, um, you know, that, that are necessary for the manufacturing of lithium or, or solid-state batteries? We don't know the answer to that. I mean, but, but that's not even allowed to be put on the table because some bureaucrat in some government agency said the planet is warming. Another bureaucrat agreed. I mean, forget they've never been in business. Forget they're, they're, they're probably somewhat scientifically qualified to make those observations and offer up those conclusions. I think anybody that says anything other than I don't know or showing your ignorance, I think the only smart thing to say in this very complex argument is I don't know. Let's further explore. So, so to those, if Dave Baker has been convinced that, yes, burning fossil fuel is bad for the climate, does Baker have any idea how much mining for lithium, cobalt, magnesium, nickel, and graphite are to the planet? I mean, does he have any idea um, how much of those how much of those minerals are available out there? You, you see, I mean, we, we don't have these debates, guys, because and I think Dale's all over it because some people in America have been programmed to take government at its word, and if government says something to be true. They just kind of robotically say, well, I mean, some guy that graduated from Harvard that wears a really nice suit that has credentials out of the yin-yang, he said it, so it must be um, fact. And I just, I'm not one of those. I'm sorry. I'm just not one of those. Even if I were convinced that burning fossil fuel was the main threat, the extent, existential threat that Rev talked about to the planet that, that I live on, my grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids, and I have a moral and ethical responsibility, I, I've still got to, I got to, I mean, isn't it rational to say, hey, how about this other power source? I mean, what, what are the consequences of mining for lithium, cobalt, magnesium, nickel, and graphite? I mean, do we, have we even explored that? Do we have any idea what, what, what the environmental consequence of those are? What, what is the humanitarian consequence? I mean, are, are we more dependent on China for cobalt, magnesium, nickel, and graphite than we are Saudi Arabia for oil? I mean, aren't those geopolitical matters that should be discussed? No, because some bureaucrat in some government agency said this is the way to go, and they know that America today has about a 40% minority that will blindly and loyally follow wherever they say go. 843 661 0937, take a break. Back in a few. The journey that you went on to, to write this book and why it's of concern to you. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I started traveling to the Congo um, five years ago. Um, I've been doing research on slavery and child labor for about 20 years, uh, traveling all around the world, documenting slaves and child laborers, human trafficking. Um, and this came across my radar um, maybe seven years ago. Um, people started talking in the field about cobalt. Cobalt's in the batteries. It's in the Congo. The conditions are horrible. And I had no idea. I'd never heard of this. Uh, so I started planning to take trips to get down there. And I took my first trip um, back in 2018. 
Um, my plan was I thought I would try to lay the groundwork to do some academic research. Um, and the things I saw there were so appalling and heart-wrenching and urgent that uh, I changed my approach. I thought, um, people need to know about this. Um, I, need to, I need to write a book. Uh, and so I started planning more trips, and I just kept going back. And the reason this is important, Joe, um, and we can dig into this um, in more depth, um, throughout the whole history of slavery, I mean, I'm going back centuries, Never, never in human history has there been more suffering that generated more profit and was linked to the lives of more people around the world ever, ever in history than what's happening in the Congo right now. And the reason I say that is this. The cobalt that's being mined in the Congo is in every single lithium-ion rechargeable battery manufactured in the world today. Every smartphone, every tablet, every... Uh, uh, laptop, and crucially, every electric vehicle. Um, so you and I, we can't function on a day-to-day -day basis without cobalt, and three-fourths of the supply is coming out of the Congo. Um, and it's being mined in appalling, heart-wrenching, dangerous conditions. Um, and so that's why people need to know, because uh, by and large, the world doesn't know what's happening in the Congo. It's something that people sort of know peripherally that, you know, that they call them conflict minerals. And, you know, they know that they're coming from an area of the world that's very poor. But I don't think people are aware of how horrible it is. There has been have been some documentaries that have been done on it, and they're all terrifying. Yeah. So so conflict minerals was phase one. And that's actually not cobalt. Um what is what what's term what does it refer to conflict so minerals? conflict minerals uh, also called the three TG minerals are tin tungsten tantalum and gold um, and those are in the eastern Congo and that um, catastrophe started uh, around the year 2000 uh, late 1990s 2000 um, shortly after the Rwandan genocide um, the militias moved in and Eastern Congo is sitting on some of the largest reserves in the world of those 3TG um, minerals, especially tantalum. And those are all used in microprocessors. And you can think back to, you know, around the year 2000, uh, mobile phones first started coming out and gaining traction. I still remember my little StarTac flip phone that mm -hmm. I had from Motorola. You remember that? Sure. Uh, and... All that supply was coming out of eastern Congo. Militias and warlords were um, uh, forcing the local population at gunpoint, machete point, to dig this stuff out. And it was flowing up into the formal supply chain into mostly um, those first-generation cell phones. And uh, that became known as conflict minerals. Uh, cobalt started later. Cobalt really took off about 10, 12 years ago. And it's in another part of the country, in the mining provinces in the southeast of the Congo. And cobalt took off because uh, it was started to be used in lithium-ion batteries to maximize their charge and stability. Um, and it just so happens that the Congo, just as it was sitting on more than half the world's reserves of coltan and, of course, a lot of gold and diamonds and other things, is sitting on more cobalt than the rest of the planet combined. And it's in a small little patch of the Congo, 
southeastern corner, a part that used to be called Katanga. And uh, before anybody knew what was happening, Chinese government, Chinese mining companies took control of almost all the big mines. Um, and the local population has been displaced, uh, is under duress, and they dig in absolutely subhuman, gut-wrenching conditions for a dollar a day, feeding cobalt up the supply chain into all the phones, all the tablets, and especially electric cars. And we're looking at a video now. Jamie, what is this? The mines? This is video. So I think so. This is yeah. so crazy to see. This is the bottom of the supply chain of your iPhone, of your Tesla, of your Samsung. I mean, I'm just naming those companies. Right. Uh, it's all of them, right? All of them. We're not just picking on them. And here's what you need to know, Joe, about this video. I, I was the first outsider to get into this mine. Uh, and that's why it's just a really short video that I was, I was able to take. This is an industrial cobalt mine where there's not supposed to be one artisanal miner. Now, that's the term used for people who are just digging by hand as opposed to tractors and excavators. There's not supposed to be one here. That's what the story is told at the top of the chain. This mine, and I can name it, it's called Shabara. There's not supposed to be one artisanal miner here, according to the consumer-facing tech companies and EV companies buying this cobalt. Lo and behold, I walk into this place, and this is what I see. There's more than 15,000 human beings crammed into that pit, digging by hand. And if you have sound, you hear the mallets, you hear the shouting, you hear the, the grunts. It's a mass of humanity. You might expect to see a scene like this. Hi. Hello. Well, I, mean, I just wanted you to hear some of that. Brief. I mean, the, the mm. media doesn't tell you that story because the media is bought and sold by big corporate America. That was obviously and, a Rogan. Interview. Sure. I mean, that, that was a Rogan um, interview there, Joe Rogan. And um, I had a bully ad come up during the middle of it. And we're always nervous about Rogan. Especially we don't we don't proofread Rogan. There's no telling when the bomb may drop. He's fond of the bomb, uh, shall I say, Rodrigo? Right, yes, and, and we are not. Yeah, and we're not. But I mean, that's kind of a, that's a um, that's just a part of his vocabulary. It is what it is. But um, but I, you know, th there's another side of the story. I mean, how many of you have ever heard that? That in and and, and really and truly, the compelling part of that story is the Chinese seize control of the uh, of the mining rights. So, so when we're talking about, hey, we can't burn any more fossil fuel, we got these electric cars that are saving the world, are they? I'm going to ask those slaves in the Congo if they're saving the world or not. I mean, and this guy's very familiar. I mean, I've watched this. This is weird. Um, I, I know what Riz thinking. How do you end up watching <laughs> that? Um, I mean, I plunder right. around a lot. And, and when I hear things about, I heard uh, a story or read a story in the Wall Street Journal about conflict minerals. And I'm like, what is conflict mineral? I mean, what mineral is in conflict with another mineral? It's not a, it's a humanitarian conflict. I mean, it, it's, you know, people being forced to, you know, slave labor. And the Chinese are now in control of the majority of cobalt uh, mining done in some of these places in the Congo. And you heard him say that the, the Congo has more cobalt than the rest of the world combined. And let me tell you something. You ready for Pamplico Indian 101? He ain't building lithium ion without cobalt. And, and Apple can say it's okay, and Tesla can say it's okay, and Ford and GM and some of these, you know, politicians that want to save the planet 
I mean, they can say everything's okay here, guys. What I'm saying is there's always another side of the story. And we live in a world today where we're only allowed to hear one side of the story. And that's probably why 40% of Americans take some things at face value because they're not hearing the other side of the story. Um, there's, there's a lot of other things to consider as we transition from one energy source to another. And it's complicated. I mean, it's enormously complicated. And they're human beings. I mean, 15,000 human beings. Um, I mean, the disturbing reality of cobalt mining for rechargeable batteries. I mean, you can YouTube that. Let me say it again. The disturbing reality of cobalt mining for rechargeable batteries. But we're going to save the planet, right? I mean, we're going to stop the planet from warming. Forget those 15,000 slave laborers down in that cobalt mining working for the Chinese government. We're going to save the planet. John Kerry and Al Gore will be here in a minute, and they're Learjet, right? I mean, we're saving the planet. I mean, it's, it's complicated, and, and it just it, it boggles my mind that intelligent people take government at its word, and they don't believe there's another side of the story here. And, and if we're going to, if, if, I mean, once again, I'm making the assumption, and I'm giving benefit of the doubt to those who believe in climate change. Let's say you're right. I mean, let's say that, that the earth is warming and, and man emitting carbon is the biggest contributor and the, the biggest carbon contributor is the burning of fossil fuel. I mean, I don't buy that, but I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. Do you not believe there's another reality? I mean, if we're not going to use fossil fuel, what are we going to use? I mean, do you think Santa Claus leaves lithium-ion batteries under the tree? I mean, do you think they grow on a kutzu vine somewhere under a bridge in rural Alabama? No. And, and I, 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 I failed to, I, I just can't grasp how people of average intelligence don't go there. They don't accept the complicated realities that are so pervasive in this debate. And it is a macro, macro, macro debate. How many lives have been changed by the internal combustion engine? I mean, of the 20 greatest inventions in the history of mankind, is the internal combustion engine one? Yes, absolutely. And we're going to throw it by the wayside because some bureaucrat at some university said, I know a better way. I know a much better way. Well, I wonder if, if those slave laborers of the Congo believe that's a better way. Get more cobalt, says the Chinese government. Get more cobalt, says the Chinese government. And Apple and Tesla and Ford and GM pay the mainstream media to not tell that side of the story. I mean, it, 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 there's, a, there, there's a perpetual conflict that we must accept in all of our lives. If we don't, what we sound like nuts in believing what the government says is true. And we can play some more of this, but, I mean, it's about 15 minutes and there may be a bomb or two in there. But um, I think we managed Rogan uh, fairly adequately and, uh, and fairly well. But you knew nothing of that. No. I mean, you never heard of that. I mean, had you ever heard, Josh, had you ever heard of conflict minerals? Yes. Okay. And, and that's what led me down the road. Conflict minerals? What's conflict mineral? I mean, what does that mean? You, you know, and, and the Wall Street Journal said, I mean, in one of the articles I read a couple of years back, um, you know, the, um, that if we're going to pursue this as an alternative, we're going to have to mine cobalt in the Congo. And China has the rights to mining cobalt in the Congo. And who really believes that China is interested in human rights? I mean, their record speaks for itself. 
oh, but let's stop warming the planet by not burning fossil fuel because some government agency said that's the direction we need to go. And I guess that's my, I mean, if there's a lesson in this story, and I'm certainly not a professor nor a tutor nor a, uh, a you know, a lecturer, but just be careful that you're only being fed half the story. Be very curious about the, what the rest of the story. Nothing's that easy. But, but some of these bureaucrats and some of these liberals will t- try to convince you there's nothing to it. We're just going to stop making internal combustion engines, and we're going to st- start making electric cars. And the world will be a better place, and we'll be celebrated. I mean, it, you know, I mean, John Kerry basically said, you know, it's kind of rare that the world at one given moment would have, you know, such supreme figures as us. To, I, mean, he, I mean, he said, he said that it with at a straight Davos. Face. I mean, he said at Davos that they were all in that room. There were a bunch of ETs. I mean, they're, they're, they were a bunch of extraterrestrials. Well, I, I just wonder if you asked those 15,000 miners in the Congo, you know, hey, what do you think of all this cobalt required to build electric vehicles so we can stop polluting the planet? I mean, yeah, Kerry gets to fly around on his Lear. And Gore gets to fly around on his Gulf Stream. But, but you get to, I mean, you get a dollar a day. Mind that cobalt. Mind that. Co- I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible to me how naive intelligent people are in our country. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. You ready? We're talking about cars, talking about green energy, talking about renewables, talking about uh, cobalt and magnesium and nickel and carbon and all these other. It's complicated. It's a very, very complicated matter, and you can't fix some of these with a soundbite or a bumper sticker. Um, But we try. We try mighty, (laughs) mighty hard um, to do that. Here's my question. You ready? Mm -hmm. What vehicle in America is the best-selling vehicle? 843-661-0937. 843-661-0937. What is the best-selling vehicle in America? 843-661-0937 is the number. The best-selling vehicle in the America. The best-selling okay. vehicle in America is... Hi, you are on the air. You know the answer? I do. F-150 Ford. F- yep, F-150 since 1981. Um, it's had a run. It's had a good run of being the best-selling vehicle in the world. Who is this? Where are you calling from? This is Tim Hyman from the great town of Pamplico, I, South Carolina. I thought I recognized that that <laughs> accent. Um, hang tight. We'll get you back to Josh. He'll get your information. I think the Chevy Silverado may be number two. But, um, yes, yeah, since 1981, the Ford F-150 has been America's top-selling vehicle. Um what 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 do they call it? the ever popular pickup truck is um you know the um the truck was something you were relegated to when I was a kid. I mean your mom had a car, your dad had a truck, and if you went on a date, you drove the truck. Man, you were embarrassed about driving the truck. Now the truck is the vehicle of choice, um, not mm-hmm. just in work but um in play as well. And it's kind of a um I mean the SUV would be what what you know truck meets uh, truck meets car, and out yep. of that comes a comes an SUV. I want to thank Pepsi for uh, sponsoring the Takes Mondays to Make Fridays trivia. I had a lot of calls toward the end of the show. I don't know what's happening with Wake Up ah, with Wake Up Carolina, but as later waking up, Rev and I have talked the last couple of weeks, 
the six to seven hours just being uh, a bit dead. I mean, it really and truly has. And uh, in the seven o'clock hour, we kind of pick up a little steam, and it's almost like we could go another hour or two once we get to the finish line. Um, are you folks sleeping later than normal? It does um, seem to be the case. It does. And, and I don't the phones are ringing now. We didn't have time to get to a couple of calls toward the end. Um, and, and I guess it's complicated, guys. I mean, I don't I don't profess to have all the answers. I mean, I got strong opinions, and I have confidence in my ability to back up my opinions. But I certainly don't believe that everything that comes out of my mouth is the only thing worthy of consideration. There are, there are a lot of things out there to consider. But it is amazing to me um, that there are people in America – who just trust what the government says. And if the government says, hey, we need to stop building internal combustion engines and, and build electric vehicles or, I mean, it's an existential threat or the end of time or, you know, we'll all burn up and we'll be charred caucuses. I, I, I don't, I just, for the life of me, don't get into that. I mean, I, I just don't understand how anybody, I'll, I'll say this. One of the most redeeming qualities is to be highly skeptical of your own opinion. I mean, I, I really believe that. One of the most redeeming qualities a man or woman can have is to be highly skeptical of their own opinion. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. It's a work in progress. You're trying to learn. You're trying to know more. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to know more. I am in no way, shape, or form opposed to renewable energy. I mean, that would be stupid. I'm not opposed to a better way to power motor vehicles. I mean, that would be foolish but I'm convinced the marketplace does it much better than some government edict or order by some bureaucrat who probably in all honesty has never lived or existed or thrived or prospered in, in the free market. Is the free market perfect? No, it is absolutely full of flaws and fallacies, but it's a lot better than the alternative. And the alternative would be government deciding what Josh, Dave and Ken drive. And I just don't have, that much faith in government. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.